Hey everybody, how's it going? It's Wayne here, and this is the Green Pill Podcast. And this will be the last podcast before we do a significant rebranding. And I'm not going to give away what the rebranding is going to show. Uh, but I will say that this is a great podcast to end the Green Pill on. Because we're having on the show someone who is one of our most well-received guests from the first year or so of doing this podcast. The Thomas Miller Professor at UC Hastings College of Law. Hadar Avram. So Hadar is an incredibly distinguished scholar who's published books, given lectures and talks, been the president of important societies of criminal law and criminology. But the conversation here goes in some surprisingly practical directions. We talk a little bit about her kids, or I should say her kid Rio, and what to tell your kid about Santa Claus, among other things. But one of the really cool things about Hadar is she always does an incredibly good job about tying the personal with the political, understanding how the personal decisions we make, including how we raise our kids, can have political impacts that reverberate throughout the entire system. The other reason I really want to have Hadar on the podcast is because she has been so supportive of our efforts over the last couple of years. She's one of the reasons I was not disbarred before the California State Bar after I was convicted of two felonies in North Carolina. And she's one of the inspirations legally for the strategies we're undertaking in open rescue cases, including a very important trial that's unfolding in less than a month as I record this today. That's the trial of two defendants, myself and Paul Picklesheimer, in relation to an investigation in open rescue at the largest pig farm in the nation, Circle Four Foods, or Circle Four Farms, I should say, which is owned by Smithfield Foods. So this is a very fun and I hope provocative conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Um, without further ado, here is Hadar Avram. Hadar, I'm so excited to have you here, especially since uh, a month from now, I am going to be facing a very important trial that could be, lead me to be in prison for quite some time. So who better than one of the most renowned criminal law scholars and commentators in the state of California to discuss uh, that among many other issues with. So happy you're here today. Thanks well, for coming out. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. And um, we were just talking about these delicious oat milk lattes. You, you brought one and you're hoping to offer me one. Unfortunately, I'm fasting today. But um, one of the biggest revelations for me in the state of California is how much plant-based milk there is in coffee shops. Oh, we, we honestly, <laughs> we live in the future now. There is, yeah. there is no excuse not to be vegan. There's just so much wonderful food. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And I mean, why are we even talking about trials and prosecutions and imprisonment when there's oat milk lattes available? We've already won. It's already... <laughs> Shouldn't we all just go home and get one yeah, and just, forget no. about all this? No, uh, I'm kidding. Obviously, there still is some progress to be made, despite the fact that Oat milk is now the default milk at one of the most famous coffee shops in San Francisco, Blue Bottle. But um, I wanted to have you on now, especially because, and I didn't even tell you this, but you are to me an example of someone who lives a very balanced life. Like you've done some incredibly intense academic work, activism, you know, when Trump issued his immigration edict. You were one of the people out at the airport, I think risking arrest even, right? Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. This was, uh, I, I still very vividly remember what that was like. Yeah. But then you also have just a, a very wonderful personal life. You know, you play music. Um, it's in a choir, right? You sing in an I, I used to sing in a choir. I now have a young son, so oh, not so that... a lot of time for late night uh, <laughs> sure. practice. But we do play music at home with our son. For sure. And that's an example of balance, too. And as someone who's always wanted to have children, I've kind of been watching you and trying to figure out how you're doing it, because someday I'd like to do it myself. Um, but, you know, you, you keep yourself in good shape. You're just telling me about how you've become a lifeguard. 
So I guess my first, the first thing I wanted to ask you about is how do you manage the balance between all this intense activism that you care so deeply about, they get academic work and teaching, and you were teaching at both UC Berkeley and UC Hastings, I think, in the last term, and then also living a personal life that gives you a lot of fulfillment and, and your partner, Chad, and also your child, Rio. So what are, what are some of the things that you found over the last 20 years that have helped you balance oh, all these things? Uh, that I get bored easily? I don't know. Uh... <laughs> that is true of you, I think. I think... <laughs> I think that your both your body and your soul have a way of telling you when your life is out of balance. Huh. And I, balance is something that you don't just achieve and then you just kind of stay there. It's something you always have to be vigilant about because your life kind of goes in and out of balance all the time. Yeah. And when people talk to me about this, usually what I do is I'll ask them, have you ever had a house renovated or a bathroom or something like that? And has the contractor ever done the good, fast, cheap triangle for you? You know how sometimes when you renovate a house, they'll draw a triangle and they'll write at each of the corners, good, fast, and cheap, and they'll say, pick two. You can't have all three. (laughs) So so the triangle for life, I think for me, is work, uh, family or other people, and taking care of myself. Mm. And you can have it all, but you can't have it all perfect at the same time. So every time there's going to be at least one corner of the triangle that's going to lag a little bit behind the others. And just recently, when uh, during the pandemic, when I was uh, very deeply involved in the struggle uh, to rescue people in St. Quentin from COVID, mm-hmm. uh, just the anguish of dealing with that case and being close to all this suffering and getting all these phone calls from prison and all the stress of the litigation uh, meant that I really neglected my health. Mm, so yeah. that had to come back into balance. So every time kind of like, you know, life gives you this kind of slap and reminds you that, yeah. you know, something's gone out of whack and you need to balance it. Yeah. No, I'm going to ask you this question because my life has not had much balance in the last couple of years. I'm probably at my most difficult state, just mentally and emotionally that I've been in, in my life. Um, partly because of all the trials, partly because of COVID, partly just because of some personal struggles. Like my cat has been very ill and I lost a dog last year. That was really hard. Um, but I guess, but you know, as you're trying to balance these things, you know, the, I feel like the thing that people like you and me always sacrifice is that personal stuff. And I've reached the conclusion in the last couple of years that in the long term, it's actually not really a trade-off because you're actually compromising your ability to do good work and good activism when you don't maintain and take care of your personal stuff, your personal this relationships, your true. family. Yeah, you don't. You're, even your spiritual and physical well-being. And by the way, you look fantastic oh, physically. Thank so you. I, I, I know I, you haven't been physically well. And, you I know. feel wonderful, and and it's it's at a point where I feel so excellent that I don't want to ever not feel this excellent, and I That's want awesome. everybody else to also feel excellent. So yeah. I've become kind of militant about <laughs> fitness and self care and yeah. vegetables and fruit. But but the bottom line is, I think, and this is true for animal rights work, and it's true for prison work, and it's true when you're facing, you know things that you're very, very deeply care about and facing risks and and, and facing suffering is that, especially for empathetic people, it's very easy to get sucked into an enormous amount of sympathizing with with the suffering that you see every day and very difficult to balance that. The self-care even seems a little frivolous sometimes Mm. because you're like, there's all this suffering and every moment that I spend on my own comfort that's not spent on helping other people is like not okay. This was definitely a feature of the Quentin litigation. At Mm. some point I was getting five phone calls a day from prison and um, 
it's I've told people it and felt, this is from inmates this is from people currently incarcerated wow. calling from inside or from the families calling to, sure. to say you know my son my brother you know my boyfriend called me and here's what they said and and in the background you hear screaming you hear coughing you hear yells man down man down it's 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 very very difficult and people are telling you things that are just very hard to believe mm-hmm. uh, in terms of how they're being treated and how sort of callous the the prison administration is with people's health and and of course you know i'm sitting in my house in relative comfort although you know uh, caring for my toddler with no childcare and all of that while working full time but still obviously much better than the people whose suffering i'm i'm listening to and it just it just makes you morally sick to your stomach and and you start kind of neglecting yourself i started yeah. ordering a lot of food in and just kind of like eating things that were not good for me and and constantly had this kind of humming headache Hmm. that I think was a combination of stress and just being sort of morally nauseous from from sure. everything I was seeing. And then a few months into the litigation, I fell on Valencia Street and could hmm. not get up. Wow. And then all the shame that I felt about neglecting my health turned into rage. And the only thing I could think about is I don't deserve to live like this. Wow. And yep, the next morning I was at Rainbow Grocery buying vegetables and fruit and juicing and making smoothies and awesome. and and started walking around the block and a few months later i completed the oakland marathon and and you a know, few months later a few, after month, a few months later i did <laughs> the did oakland you pull marathon. That off? it's you know you it's gradually, the magic of vegetables <laughs> you grab the magic of vegetables you gradually yeah. increase the distances and you take good care of yourself and and you can really achieve miracles yeah so so now i'm very militant about keeping my good health i find that i have so Wait, much can more I just interrupt? Was, when you fell was this the time when you had that that ankle thing and you were not even really walking yeah no that was that was before oh that was before that okay because i was gonna say you I, I think i think i even saw pictures or photos or maybe i even hung out with you when you had the ankle thing on i don't remember i have a distinct recollection yeah and if you did a marathon a few months after that i would say that sounds a little irresponsible well, I'll, t- I'll tell you i i, I sprained my ankle you went from not being able to walk to work, work doing a marathon i mean in a few i months. sprained my ankle in november the marathon was in march and That's i was taken fast. i was taken to the er and i said to the doctor listen this is gonna sound stupid but yeah. You know, do you think I can run this marathon? <laughs> you literally said that at the ER. I, I know I felt ridiculous, and the doctor said, "You know, I'm a runner too. I get it," and <laughs> yeah. sent me to the Kaiser Sports Clinic, who were just wonderful. That's awesome. And they took care of me. And physical therapy, when it's good, it's really life really transforming. Wow. And you know, I'm back. Everything's fine. That's awesome. What do they do? <laughs> It's, physical you therapy know, to make you, you feel that you run fast. on a treadmill that that has like you put on a skirt that sucks out the air and huh. and then less of your body weight is on the treadmill and oh, then they gradually increase it it really it's amazing i mean that's the facility where the warriors go when they need oh, physical wow. therapy oh wow seriously so they do a very good job okay. and and they were just fantastic so it was you and clay thompson so it was me <laughs> and clay thompson exactly so i have a lot of appreciation for the warriors win sure. um so so yeah i, I think that it's really important to have this resource, which is your body, in as good a shape as you can. I mean, especially contemplating, you know, bad things that are coming down. I'm thinking about your upcoming trial and the fact that this is a trial on a lot of levels, you know, spiritual, emotional, physical, you know, who knows. It just getting yourself to just approach it from an optimal physical space is going to do so much for you because you can resource from yourself you can find so much more hope if you're feeling physically well yeah. this is i mean this is the vessel that we have this time around and yeah then we got to take care of it we got to take care yeah of and it. i mean one thing you said that, that that resonates with me is you know i don't deserve this and you don't no one i mean no, no sentient it. being deserves to be in bad health and 
and I think it was Thomas More who said, the greatest happiness any human will ever, and you could say this about any animal, is a lack of ailment or disease. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. When, when you are feeling sick or you're injured and that goes away, like I had COVID a couple months ago. <laughs> it was pretty bad mm-hmm. for me. I, I don't know why. I feel like I take care of myself. I'm fairly healthy, but it just wrecked me. Mm-hmm. I was lying on this couch nonstop for three days. And when it was done, I was so happy. I was just like, thank God. Because when you're sick, I mean, you literally, when you've got a terrible fever and everything's hurting, you're just thinking to yourself every moment, I just want to die. <laughs> like, I just yeah. want this to end. Because I couldn't even sleep. I was like mm-hmm. feverish. And one moment I was too hot, one moment I was too cold. So for all of you out there who think COVID's easy and you're healthy and young, just know. I mean, it can hit you pretty hard because it yes, hit me pretty yes, hard. Yes, it can. But, but the other thing I'm going to say is, you know, it's not just that you deserve better and I deserve better and every sentient being deserves better and the greatest happiness in the world is to not have that suffering, obviously. But even if your only life goal, even if you didn't give a shit about yourself, even if your goal was just to get those folks at San Quentin out of prison, they were not being well served by you being collapsed on the ground at Valencia. Exactly. Right? You could not continue doing the work. And the way you put it, that our body is a vessel is great because if, if you have any sort of vessel, a car, a boat, whatever it is, a bike, you know, mm-hmm. if you let it fall apart, guess what? It's not going to take you anywhere. Exactly. Right? It's going to stop working and you're going to be home by yourself, not doing any of the things you want to do and not going the places you want to go. So I think that's really good advice. Totally. I mean, I think a lot about uh, about St. Francis, the, mm. the St. Francis prayer. Uh, I, I'm not a Christian, but uh, I do live in San Francisco and I have a fondness for St. Francis. I think all animal rights activists have a fondness for St. Francis. And I think about the prayer. I think about God, you know, let me be an instrument of your peace. Mm. And, and if you really want to be an instrument of God's peace and kind of take, you know, your ego and your complications out of the equation and really just serve God's peace. Yeah. The body is the vessel through which you do it. It's it's gotta be in good shape so that you can be an instrument of God's peace. Yeah, that's so true. I don't know much about St. Francis. Obviously, I'm very sympathetic to what I have heard because I know he's the patron saint of animals, right? Mm-hmm. And, and especially Catholic. of birds. And it's under the Catholic religion? Is that, It's Catholicism, right? Not, yes. Not yes. Protestants. So, I, I know so little about Christianity. You and I are alike in not knowing a lot about Christianity. Well, St. Francis was pretty special and, huh. and, you know, all about, you know, living modestly and not without a lot of property and not consuming too much and really delighting in other people. Uh, yeah. and just... Lots of wonderful lessons, I think, for people of all religions. Yeah, you know, honestly, I had someone on the podcast recently who's deeply religious and Christian, and she was sharing about how, you know, she models her life after Christ and tries to turn out the cheek and be kind to the poor. And I thought, this is all great. I mean, this, I, I don't, you know, on some level, I, I think the leftist backlash against religion is a little bit counterproductive because there's a lot of aspects of, of religion, including even Christianity, that I think are incredibly positive. So, I don't, again, I don't know a lot about Christianity myself, but some of the most badass actors I've ever met are these Jesuits, who I think are Catholic, and do this incredible anti-war activism. A lot of them are vegan and care about the environment. And it's just, it's as you said, they see themselves as instruments of God's work, but in particular mm-hmm. of, of creating peace in this world, making sure everybody's well cared for and happy mm-hmm. and not facing some sort of exploitation or violence. And that's a beautiful thing. You know, really, like, like anything else, like really any deeply held conviction, you know, religion can serve as a power of good when it helps you put your ego aside and, yeah. and, and work toward, you know, making the world a better place. And like everything else, it can be an excuse for terrible things that, mm-hmm. that are being done and that are happening. I think it's, 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 it's really a question of, of how it's being used. I think that humans have an immense potential to, to do wonderful things and to do terrible things. Yeah. And, and really anything can be a vehicle 
yeah. for, for that. It's, it's, it's a big range. Yeah. Are you religious? Oh, that is a complicated question. I don't know. Um, you don't know. <laughs> not, not so much. Not so much. I don't think I I've ever say, heard anyone give that answer. To not that question. so much in the sense of of you know believing you know that some factual thing happened in the past that dictates what's going to happen, but but certainly in the sense that there is something about the ineffable that that needs to reach deep into us and that we we serve something that's bigger than than ourselves. And, and in terms of, of meditating, prayer, praying, or, or doing whatever it takes to focus my own thoughts and attentions hmm. every morning on just meeting everything that I encounter with as much kindness and respect as, as I can muster. I th- and I think in that respect, it has this capability of focusing your heart and your mind on, on doing the right thing. Yeah. No, I, I think uh, an intense meditation practice does create, I mean, I don't know if you want to call it religiosity, but certain spirituality, because... Like I found when I'm meditating a lot, I, you just start feeling a couple things. One is that ego detachment, because I think, especially you know the style of meditation that I'm practicing, which is usually I don't. I think there are a lot of different ways to describe this, but usually the way I describe it is I imagine I'm like floating above myself and just observing everything, my breath, mm-hmm. the sensations in my body. And it does just kind of remove you from your experience a little bit. It does. I, I have recently started doing something similar, a little bit different. I read, this is going to sound funny, I read a fabulous book by a gastroenterologist called huh. Fiber Fueled. And this guy recommends... Uh, so believe, this is a poop doctor, a gastroenterologist? This is a poop doctor, a basically. Poop doctor, yeah. So believe me, this whole, is gonna, this whole thing's going to come back to spirituality, right. weird as it sounds. From poop to spirit. <laughs> but he talks a lot about kind of, you know, how to develop your gut flora. And then I'm, I'm reading this book and then I'm like... Huh. Wow, it's not just about me. It's like I'm taking care of all these billions of other <laughs> beings that are inside me and I need to think more like a community that yeah. like so so the whole idea that there is a self. Yeah. Like that there is a single me inside is is a little bit false even from yeah. a physical perspective. Yeah, that's interesting. And somehow kind of thinking about the fact that everything I eat I'm not just eating for myself, I'm eating for my 15 million, you yeah, know, yeah. good bacteria yeah, and and absolutely. kind of like that's also kind of taking the me out passengers of it. on your vessel. Kind of. So, so I meditate and I'm kind of like, how much of this is a defined me? How much of yeah. this is kind of a community? I mean, that's kind of hilarious. a small way of thinking like a community, which we should do on a much yeah, bigger scale sure. on yeah, the yeah. planet. Yeah. You know, I, I think I read somewhere that the amount of like microbial biomass in the human body, I don't remember exactly what it is, but I think it's like many, many pounds and maybe oh, yeah. like a significant percentage of your total weight is not actually you. It's like all these other microorganisms on your skin and your gut. Right. And it has a huge impact on the way you feel totally, on everything. Totally, on everything. Yeah. So, so, so that's been kind of um, a, a, a gateway into this whole thinking sure. like a community. Yeah. So, but here's the scary thing, though. I mean, do you, have you ever thought, I wonder if some of these microbes are sentient in some way? And like, if I'm taking the side of like the good bacteria and wiping out all the bad bacteria, am I just like can any genocide against all these? Oh my gosh! These weaker bacteria that are not able to compete in my uh, my mean, gastric system or my digestive system. The philosophies of sentience can really get you into crazy rabbit yeah, holes. Can. I mean, even when you don't get into all these microbes and things like that, even when I think about things like you social insects. Yeah. Like for example, when we think about yes, you know, we name our animals, we name pets, uh-huh. you know, even we th- you know we think about farm animals as individuals but if the ants don't see themselves as individuals then the fact aren't we imposing on them this idea of individuals when they think of themselves as a a collective yeah yeah no there's that famous 
Orson Scott Card series, who, I mean, Orson Scott Card is terribly controversial now and has, I think said all sorts of horrible things. I don't even remember exactly what, but although now it's, it's in today's climate, I'm almost like skeptical when I think I've heard someone has said all these terrible things. I was, it's gotten to the point where I wonder like, have they actually said terrible things? Cause there's so much just vitriol on social media. It's hard to know. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's anyways, like, you know, a week comes by and you don't yeah. get the memo of who is a terrible who's, who's, person. Who's the so. asshole this week in the monster. <laughs> but did, did you ever read his books? Are you a sci-fi I fan? I have not, but but I'm in the company of okay. people that do. So he he wrote these books. Uh, the first book was called Ender's Game, and it's it's an amazing book. It's about these kids who are basically trained to be genius military pilots and strategists from a very early age. And so, like, this is like a six-year-old child who's ruthlessly trained to be the greatest soldier. And and all right, I'm going to give a spoiler. Are you okay with a spoiler? It's okay. all good. So what they don't realize is these genius children in their training, their simulations, they don't realize they're not actually training. They're actually fighting a war through simulations. Mm. They're, they're controlling these ships and wiping out these entire species. But the main species they're decimating and destroying is an ant-like species where each of the individuals is like a vessel for a larger consciousness. And so they kind of dispose of themselves in the same way that you and I, you know, won't stress too much about losing a fingernail. It's like, oh, you know, or like, we get a little cut or there's like a piece of skin that falls off. We just think, it's not like we think, oh my God, those poor cells, they've all died. It's like, it's such a tragedy. It's kind we of just like think, the Borg in, in, yeah, in Star no, Trek. Yeah, like the Borg too. So that's a more creepy <laughs> example than our skin. But it's interesting to think about that and ask, okay, I mean, maybe it's, you know, because I've gotten some debates recently, including from someone I started seeing recently about like, is it okay to kill ants? You know, if they're infesting your house, they're eating everything. My view is no, I never kill the ants. I was you know, carefully take them out one by one. I mean, I do kill them unintentionally. So like I had an infestation that was getting in my dishwasher and inevitably every time I ran the dishes, there'd be ants killed. And I just thought to myself, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? But I was hosting people and had too many dishes. So I kept washing the dishes. So I still definitely see insect life is not as sentient as, you know, the dog sitting in my living room or you or your child. Right. But Sometimes I wonder, am I taking that too far? Because maybe it is just like a collective consciousness that we just can't grasp because the ants don't see themselves as individuals. They see themselves as just part of this collective whole. I don't know. Per Do you perhaps, kill ants? It's, it's, so I don't, I try not to kill ants. Okay. And uh, of course we have, we take special care with spiders and we have mm. a whole thing with a, you know, my son already kind of, you know, brings me a little glass. And Your son is so cute. Oh my God. Yeah. Yes. Sorry, yes. Little, little buddy little vegan activist. Yeah, no. Oh, he's, he's He sent me a video from a, I remember passing by a demonstration a couple of weeks ago and your son was just like oh <laughs> yes he joined he joined the tail of the dxe know, parade down down beautiful. north beach and was very moved by the yeah. whole thing it was chanting animals yeah. have friends but that's awesome and he's, like he's saving us. the spiders too now he's saving the spiders that's too beautiful. he's he's very preoccupied about about veganism actually uh I think that the difficulty that he's facing now is reconciling the fact that his friends eat animal products and yeah. at the same time that they're good people. Good people. Yeah. It's oh. basically the same struggle that, that we, we all, all experience yeah. in our lives when we make all kinds of compromises mm -hmm. and don't mm -hmm. live our ideals to the fullest because maybe we can't. So, so he's having a really tough time yeah. sort of reconciling these things and, and has, has been ministering a bit about animal rights in the preschool. Yeah, wow. So, yeah, it's been, it's been interesting. It's interesting to see him try to process that. Yeah, one of the amazing things about the way you're raising Rio is I feel like you're raising him with the real understanding that there are atrocities being committed, that this is, I mean, we're going through the sixth mass extinction in this planet's history. If you look at the biomass of the planet Earth, we've basically wiped out all the wild animals, Pretty and much. all that's left is livestock and humans. We've And then the livestock, so... 
about 75% of the biomass of Earth is just livestock that we've been slaved to kill, Mm -hmm. you know, at least among terrestrial animals. Obviously, aquatic animals, it's a different ecosystem. Um, So we are, you know, committing what Orson Scott Card would call xenocide, you know, exactly. exterminating all these other species just because we had the power to do so. Totally. But I just want to finish the thought. The, The cool thing to me about what you've done in Rio is you've managed to show him this is what's happening while still having a flourishing, joyful life. Like every time I see him, he does not seem like a morose, depressed child, which no. would be very easy if you had a parent who's like an animal rights activist and supporter mm-hmm. and just an environmental advocate trying to be honest with your children. You've managed to be honest with your children or your child, I should say, about these atrocities while still maintaining a joyful life. That, that is an amazing balance. I really appreciate you saying this because it's something that I put an enormous amount of thought mm. into because... Um, I made very early on the decision as a parent, I think both of us, me and my partner, uh, made this decision that uh, we're not going to lie to our child, yeah. ever. No Santa uh, Claus? Uh, no Santa Claus. In, <laughs> in fact, Santa Claus did come up really? uh, uh, a few weeks, a few months ago. Do, like, oh no, is he going to be the one who spoils it for all the other kids too? Of course. Too? <laughs> I mean, That's I mean, That's he great. comes home and he's he says... Tell me. That's stupid. There's no Santa Claus. <laughs> well, he says, Ima, is Santa Claus real? And of course, I, I do not lie to my child. Sure. So I said, no, Santa Claus That's is awesome. not real. And then he said, but my friend Vivian said that Santa Claus is real. And uh-huh. then I said, well, how does Vivian know? Uh-huh. And then he said, well, she saw Santa Claus. And I, and I I said, well, how does Vivian know that the person she saw was Santa Claus? And then he thinks about it. And then he said, maybe it was somebody else who said he was Santa Claus. So, you know, so we learned deduction and we learned something about empiricism. and, And at the same time, one of the things that I did say is... You know, Santa Claus is real in the sense that it's fun for people to believe that yeah. Santa Claus is real. Huh. Or one time he asked me about God, if God exists. Mm-hmm. And I said, there are many people who feel that it is valuable for them mm-hmm. to have a friend How old is in the sky. Child? He's almost five. Okay. In the sky. That's pretty early to have that sort of existential angst you know, <laughs> about think, the existence of I God. It, it's, there on, it's there on all levels. Really? And, and okay. it, this conversation was even, I think, when he was four. And I said, wow. you know, and they feel like they want to express their things or ask for things or when they feel sad, it helps them to think about a friend. Yeah. And you can choose to think that there's a friend like that or not. And it's okay either way. Yeah. And gave him examples of friends that believe in God and that don't believe in God. And, and, so, and so we really made this decision that you can explain really anything at a child-appropriate level. Sure. And, and if you find something, if you encounter something that you cannot explain or, or that you are embarrassed to explain to a five-year-old, then that thing should just not exist. Like hmm. if, if my child and I walk around the tenderloin and, and Rio says why is this person without pants? Why is this person pooping in the street? Or why Mm. is this person passed out on Mm. on the sidewalk? If I can't provide a satisfying answer to that, then that just should not happen. Absolutely. That's a good principle in life to extend to so many things. Like it's one of the reasons I think, you know, I'm very confident in the long term our fight against factory farming will be a successful one because they just can't defend what they do. They can't explain it, which is why they make such an extraordinary effort to gag you know, even their own employees from publishing and photographs. Precisely. And this is the reason why when people say, oh, it's really hard to raise vegan kids. Mm. I'm like, it is not hard at all. Hmm. People are born with natural yeah, compassion. Absolutely. It is hard to raise non-vegan, non-vegan kids. kids. It's yeah. hard to drive the compassion out of people's hearts. Yeah. I still remember when he was a kid, I went to this Wow, I've never group. heard someone say that before, but that's so true. I mean, I went to this, yeah. to this, uh, to this parent group and uh, there was a song involving chickens and, and, mm-hmm. and one of the kids said, 
wait, but chicken is the thing that we eat. And all the parents kind of giggled in embarrassment mm -hmm. and were like, well, how do we explain to our child yeah. that the chicken is the animal, but it is also the thing that is on our plate? And I said, well, if you don't feed animals to your child, you don't have, have to, to explain, explain it. that. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's because you're living in harmony with, with what is, I think, I think a, a way that is worth living. And, and, so, and so a lot of this kind of effort that people make to pretzel themselves around all kinds of compromises and things, if you really do your best in good faith to come as close as you can to what you think is a good and worthy life, there's less that you have to giggle in embarrassment about when you yeah. talk to your kid. Yeah. So did I ever tell you about my experiments with truth? No. So a long time ago. So uh, when I was a much less happy person, <laughs> I, you know, I'm struggling now relative to the last 10 years. I've been a pretty happy person in the last 10 years. In the last year has been really hard. But uh, 10, 15 years ago, I was very, very depressed and suicidal and like, you know, doing all sorts of self-harm. Like, I'm going to give everyone a trigger warning that I'm going to talk about self-harm. But um, I had like scars in my arms from all the cutting I was doing when I was in grad school and then early on in law school. And I was just trying to find some lesson or wisdom about how you could live a happier and more meaningful life because everything I did just felt very fake. I wasn't sure why I was in law school. I wasn't sure why I was in grad school. It was mostly kind of parental and cultural expectations. Chinese people are just expected to academically achieve and we're never actually explained. We're never told why, you know, why am I doing this? Why am I trying to become a professor? And unfortunately, unlike you, I didn't make it. I wasn't a very good professor. So I, so I left. But one of the things I found was Gandhi wrote this book called Experiments on Truth. And I actually don't even remember the details. It was so long ago. I should pick it up again. But he talked about how he tried to be honest and completely candid in all his interactions and how difficult that was, but also how much growth it triggered. Like it, it actually, he went through enormous hardship, but it made him a more peaceful, kind person because mm -hmm. when he started acknowledging the impact of his own feelings, and this is actually the biggest thing that happened to me. So I tried these experiments on truth for like a year and I wasn't even that social a person. So like 2003 and four, like I did not hang out with my law school classmates. I didn't have any friends. I'd never even been on a date. Like I was a very isolated person. So my interactions with other human beings were very limited, but even as limited as they were, when I had to be honest with people and someone would say like, Oh, how do I look right now? You know, I wouldn't say like, oh, you look great if I didn't think they look great. Um, it, the most important thing it changed in me is it made me realize that all the negative thoughts I had about people when, I, when they actually manifested and came out in the real world and I had to reckon with them and reckon with the impact they had on other people, I didn't like them. <laughs> mm -hmm. I didn't like those impacts. I couldn't just hide them away, these resentments and angers and bitterness. When it came out, I realized, you know what? I don't feel great about this. And this is causing harm to someone else. Like someone comes to me and says, um, you know, oh, can you help me find an outline for this law school class? And my answer is, no, I'm not going to do that because I don't like you. You know, it just, <laughs> which I, I did sometimes because, you know, I wanted to be honest with people. Um, it, it just made me realize, like, my thoughts actually have some power and they actually have the power to affect the world around me and even harm people. And wouldn't it be better if I had more positive thoughts and, like, just had a more reflective, compassionate approach to all of my interactions. And it's one of the main reasons I, be, I went from being, I was a very angry person. You know, I got in a lot of fights in high school. I, I almost got kicked out of law school because I screamed at the dean once. Did I ever tell you that story? No, and in I fact, like out the knowing dean. you for, for as many years as I do, I find all of this so hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I literally cursed out the dean of students oh, wow. at the University of Chicago. 
And they started, it wasn't even a, it was like a beginning of a disciplinary proceeding. It wasn't actually a disciplinary proceeding, but I got called into the Dean's office. Oh, wow. Um, Saul Levmore, bless his heart. He was very kind to me. And he asked me if I was on drugs. <laughs> he said, you, you must be on some sort of drug, right? Like, and I said, no, I'm just crazy, you know? <laughs> but the reason, part of the reason I was crazy was because I was bottling up all these resentments and I had not figured out a way to manage those resentments and have them manifest and even transform them into something that was more compassionate towards the people around me. So instead of trying to understand why the dean of students was upset about something I'd done, I just laughed at her and right. told her to fuck off and left the room. And you know, it's not the sort of thing you do in law school. You said earlier that your, your son is kind of struggling between, uh, because he's trying to recognize my friends are eating these animals that I care about and love. And you've been very intentional about how to balance that. But you didn't get into too much detail. So I'm, I, I'm wondering, like, what are the specific things that you told your son that you think have helped? Because um, I think this can help us all. Because as you said, what we say to our children in many ways is a good guide for how we can operate in the entire world. So I guess when, when, when my son asks me, well, why do you think they're doing that? I yeah. mean, you know, my friend X is, is a good friend and is, 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 ni is nice and, and funny and generous. Mm -hmm. and, and why are they eating animals? I, I, again, it's what I tell my son is not all that different than what I would tell an adult, which mm. is, I think it's two things. I think it's, um, Maybe they don't know, I say, yeah. which, which is, I think, true even for people who do realize oh, it yeah, because you know, people get their meat, you know, processed and pressed into cartoon characters and, and, and what have you in a way that sort of divorces it from where it came from. And I also say it's very hard for people to do things that they're not used to. Mm -hmm. It's very hard for people to change. That's true too. Uh, he has examples of that. I mean, we, we have, we have relatives that we love who eat things that are not good for their health and, hmm. and, and just do not seem to, to connect the dots that if they stop eating this way, they're going to feel better to, to the point that people are truly endangering their lives. And, uh, so, so he knows that it's very difficult for people to change when they're used to something. Uh, he was quite shocked when his dad and I told him that we were fed meat when we were little. Mm. So he said, you know, we, we feed you vegan because we know that we don't want to hurt the animals. But when we were little, our parents thought that you really could not be healthy without eating meat. Yeah. So we were fed meat. And then he thought about this. And then he said, Ima, if I were your dad, I would not feed you meat. Mm. So, so there's, so there's this understanding there that yeah. people are doing the best thing that they can. Sure. I, and I also think that there's a lesson in, in sort of encouraging him to see the goodness in others also in, in not doing the thing that you have called just recently, the narcissism of small differences. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's kind of like finding where you're different from other people and then sort of lashing out at them, even if they're actually pretty close, close to you yeah. in terms of their sensibilities. So, so instead, what you want to do is you want to find sort of more pockets of sameness and pockets of mm -hmm. empathy and sort of try to work to expand those. Yeah. Like recently, I have a friend who, 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 uh, who invited me to, to chat with her about something. And she said, um, I just saw this movie about an octopus. I think it was my octopus teacher, mm. the, the wonderful documentary. Oh, it's a beautiful about, documentary. Oh, gorgeous oh documentary. God. Yeah. And she said, I can't eat octopus anymore. Wow. And then, and then I, sort of, I spent some time talking to her about octopuses and what wonderful animals they are. And I said, what about chickens and cows? Yeah. And kind of like maybe we can take that opening that you've opened for the octopus and open it for other animals as sure. well. Yeah. No, I mean, I think part of what causes so many people, including people in the industry, to disregard the interests of the animals is just these, these stereotypes we have about them. I think part of it is they don't know, too, like for sure. Um, 
they don't know just how much these birds are suffering. Because even if you think they're lesser creatures, watching a, a chicken collapse on the ground, suffering from ammonium burns from their own feces for weeks before slaughter, it's, it's just an awful, disgusting sight. And it's still shocking to me because I think I saw some recent polling data suggesting like 70%, maybe it's 60, 70% of Americans still say, oh, the meat I buy comes from a place where they treat the animals kindly. You know, mm-hmm. setting aside what you think about animal liberation and complete veganism, the idea that 70% of Americans think that the meat they're, they're eating comes from animals that are treated kindly, not even just, you know, not even like not without torture, but sure. actually kindly. Like there's, and a lot of this is marketing. There's all this marketing that goes into, you know, factory farmed eggs. you got a little girl petting a chicken on Whole Foods eggs cartons that convinces people sure. that, okay, I, I'm doing something different. Um, but I think... Even when people do know that animals are suffering, when they see these beings as just like different and strange or stupid. So like Mike Weber, uh, the chicken farmer, who actually you've kind of helped us in some legal challenges because mm-hmm. you wrote a, a, an opinion for us that I, I still think is the most important legal opinion, certainly in my history as an activist that I've read and been a part of, but arguably one of the most important in the animal rights movement's history, just arguing that these animals are living things under the the law of the state of California and therefore people have the right to rescue them. Mike Weber, when I was there that day sharing the opinion to him, the thing that he kept saying to me over and over again is they're chickens. They're stupid. And chickens can do math, they can but do people math. don't know that. No. And, and, and it's just, and, and they also can empathize. They, they respond to seeing their own chicks in distress by their, their own cortisone levels. Their, their pupils will dilate. Mm-hmm. Even just seeing their babies suffer causes them to suffer. And they have, I think it's like 15 different distinct calls. So like much more language than an infant because they can say, hey, there's a hawk flying by. Right. And they can even, roosters can even deceive other roosters. Did you know this? So they will, yeah. they will basically make a different call. So this is kind of fucked up actually. But so a rooster who sees a hawk coming by may give a different call to convince another rooster to come and then he'll run away oh, wow. and hope that the rooster gets caught by the hawk. Kind of like that joke, I'm just need to run faster than you. Exactly. So the bear will get you. Yeah, no, roosters will actually manipulate and use, and they've tested this and seen like, why is that rooster making like the non-hawk call when there's a hawk? And they say, oh my God, that rooster's doing it when he sees the other rooster. So this, so they is, have, this is amazing. Yeah, they have oh some God. basic theory of mind. They can say like, oh my God, there's a rooster over there that I don't like and I'm going to murder him. It's like, it's super fucked up, but it also shows even if you thought intelligence was the basis for giving, and I don't think Which in itself case. is a good question. Like, it is a good question. Why is intellect kind of like Yeah, why is it smarter beings compassion? deserve? But even if you thought that were true, there's no question that a chicken and certainly a pig or a cow is so much more intelligent than, than a child of like six mm-hmm. months or even one year. You know, um, and so the idea that just because these beings are less intelligent than us, we can exploit them. I mean, right. it just doesn't hold any water because many of them are very intelligent. And, and you, but, you know, ultimately, I think behind a lot of this self-delusion is just the fact that the, the more I think about this over the years, the more I realize. And, and I'm not an outlier here. I think we're mm. all like this. We just the thought that we are not good people is just unbearable to us. Hmm. So we're going to twist the truth in whatever yeah. way we can for ourselves, not even for other people, away from the thought that we're we're not being good. Yeah. Yeah, there's a have you heard of the concept just world bias? Mm-hmm. Because John Jost at NYU has come up with this theory, but basically when whenever you ask someone about some sort of deep concern about the nature of our society and the systems we live under, they have a bias towards thinking, oh, if, if something wrong is happening, it's, it's got to be because that person's a bad person. So like police brutality is a great example. Until very recently when you know, a lot of activism has changed public views of police brutality, 
it was pretty easy to dismiss accounts of police brutality. Honestly, that's the way I felt for many years. Like my uncle was a cop. I was such a law and order kid. Did you know I was a Republican growing up in Indiana? Because we were all Republicans. So mm-hmm. like when we did, you know, the elections in school, I always voted for Bush. And I was like, Clinton, you know, mm-hmm. Reagan is my guy, you know? And it's mm-hmm. just, I was a law and order kid. And I, because I'd always been taught and told and, and had this bias that, you know, I mean, this is order. This is authority. Of course, our world is just. I mean, there can't be anything wrong. And it wasn't until I started having individual personal interactions with police that I realized, wait a minute, you know, like this is, this is not what I've been mm-hmm. promised. Like my face is in the concrete and my skin is getting abraded from him rubbing me up against the concrete mm-hmm. in Chicago merely for leafleting. There's something about power that's distorting this platonic ideal of law enforcement. And, and obviously, I think most Americans now see this with what happened with George Floyd and Eric Garner and so on. But There's, yeah, it's tough to deprogram people from that just world bias. Oh yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm in ourselves I'm, too. I'm reminded of this this really wonderfully written piece from uh, from Catch Twenty Two from Joseph Heller's mm, uh, Catch Twenty Two. Such where, a good book. So Yossarian's walking around in in Rome in, in World War Two. He's the hero of the book, and he sees a man yelling in the street help police as he's being dragged away. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, the words help police get transformed in Yossarian's mind. And he realizes the person is not yelling to the police, come mm-hmm. and help me, but rather to warn other people, help, the, the police, police are, are getting wow. me. Yeah. And, and like what a complete conceptual change in the fact that the people who are presumably supposed to care for you are actually the people that are threatening and endangering and hurting you. Yeah. No, that's certainly true for activists. Like I... <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I actually had a, a pretty intense conversation recently with a good buddy of mine, Leighton, who is very much against the idea that the police are systemically corrupt in some way. Um, and I just think for anyone who's an activist and has seen how much police, and I, I don't know if this, this is just the culture of the United States. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on Israel, for example, or other countries that you've done research in or, uh, or you have even you know, observed on a personal level. But the culture of the police in the United States is so status quo oriented and so beholden to power. You know, it's like, it's, it's just kind of shocking. And even this criminal case that I'm going to trial in, you know, like, even if you think all the things that are alleged against us are true, in the worst case scenario, that we stole these two piglets, like the state itself is saying each of these two piglets was worth $42. So $84 in total of property loss. Mm-hmm. And the amount of time and money and energy, you know, FBI agents crossing state lines, like, a caravan of, I think it was six SUVs of FBI agents, um, the state attorney general being involved in this, the federal government, easily six figures, probably in the seven figures of expenditures, just prosecuting a couple activists for taking two pigs that are worth $84. It's you know, this ridiculous. is the distortion of power and in, in the imposition of our legal system. And it's one of the reasons why, like, sometimes people will say, well, you know, I, I, I'm supportive of the general idea of trying to help animals. I'm, you know, I'm I'm glad you're educating people, but I believe in the rule of law. It's like, well, I believe in the rule of law too. And the rule of law means like should be treated alike, right? right. So if, if, I mean, I've had my bike stolen. I've had my car broken into. Never, never have I managed to have any police officer even investigate because in places like San Francisco and Berkeley, it's just like, oh, sorry, you lost your iPhone. You know, $600, not worth it. Um, but when it's a powerful corporation, that has $84 at risk, suddenly everybody in the entire legal system is just bending over backwards to do whatever they can to make sure Spithfield is vindicated. Oh my gosh. Very strange. And, 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 and like you said, even when it doesn't actually make any sense from an efficiency perspective, yeah. I, I just came back from American Sociological Association from mm. the meeting in LA and uh, 
and was the discussant on a panel where somebody presented a paper about pay to stay. So, so uh, if you don't know what pay to stay is, it's um, in many places in the United States, uh, this may come as a total shock. It certainly came as a shock to me when I found out. People are responsible for paying for their own incarceration. Wow. So, so you actually have to pay for your stay in jail That's as twisted. if you were staying in a hotel, which is insane, yeah. wow. but apparently is constitutionally valid. And, uh, and of course, people don't have money because that's They're how people typically end yeah. up in jail and in prison. And then there's lawsuits after people get out pursuing them wow. to try to get the money out of them. Now, a lot of these people have disabilities and, and they don't even understand what's going on. Uh-huh, I mean, yeah. I've written a book about this called Cheap on Crime. I don't understand what's going on. Like this whole yeah. thing makes no sense to me. So how does a person even begin to make sense of the fact that they're being persecuted to pay a bill for their their jail stay. And I'm thinking, you know, all the enormous amount of effort that the police and the courts and the kind of enforcement authorities go through trying to get, you know, a check out of this person with a mental disability, like surely this can't be worth it. Or or here's another one. This is from Chicago. You'll, you'll enjoy this. So, so somebody did a beautiful, can I ask you one question about pay to stay? So what happens if they don't pay. It's just a civil judgment. It's a lien on their future earnings. Isn't that insane? You know, which of course does wonders for people's reentry. It's it's just like this whole thing is so insane to me. Yeah. And and, I mean, it's, it's just one of many things that I discover in in my line of work every day, I find out something like there's under a stone, there's this huge injustice that's going to take me my whole life to fix. And I think, Oh my God, this can't be constitutional. There's no way that this is okay. And then I find out that yes, it is a okay. And courts have approved it and everything is fine. I mean, here's another example. So, so, So parking citations, which is something that oftentimes a municipality enforces because they need money. It's basically a way to fill the coffers of the municipality. And it turns out somebody did this gorgeous study in in Chicago, a Mm -hmm. guy named uh, Ruben Ortiz from the Center for Policing uh, Equity. And it seems like um, something like 13 or 14 percent of all the all the parking citations in Chicago are given an error. So what happens is this, uh, in many places, parking attendants or parking enforcers, I should say, give the citations. They know the parking laws, but the cops don't. And in low income Mm -hmm. neighborhoods, cops police them more frequently. So it's the cops that give the citations Mm. and the cops don't actually know the parking regulations. They just use it as a tool of control. And because in those neighborhoods, there's a lot of undocumented folks, many of them from Central America, they don't speak English very well. They don't have it in them to contest the tickets, nor do they really want to kind of like seek an entanglement with the legal system. So all of this stuff remains uncontested. And that's another way to just kind of, you know, bulldoze people into just getting money out of them. So there's all these like you know little mini like microcosms of misery that that are created and it's just it's the more i do this work it's i'll never get used to this i just yeah. like every time you unpack something like this it's just like you find out something that's making one private life just miserable immes- immensely miserable yeah no yeah it's funny i just i had a parking ticket in berkeley a couple months ago that was improperly given to me and <laughs> i was trying to figure out how to contest it and i even like I put some effort, and I'm a you know I'm a yeah, lawyer, and, and I, I like put some effort into it. Person with and, resources. Yeah, like so, I sent in a photo, and I was like, no, this was not proper. Like you can see, I paid the meter, but they gave me the ticket, and like no one responded for a while. I I got a collections notice. I said you're gonna we're gonna send this to collections unless you pay. And I was like, okay, I should just pay this because it's gonna destroy my credit if I don't pay right. this. The appellate process is this. Kafka-esque labyrinth that I can't figure out what to right, do. And, you're and I, I am a lawyer of- and a former law professor, and I struggled. Imagine how someone who is an immigrant, who does not speak English, who does not have the money and the training that I have, 
how are they going to fight any of these things? It's it's just yeah. like the the path of least resistance is to just kind of cower down and do whatever, and yeah. and it's it's like just the amount of every it's, it's banality of evil is is yeah, basically yeah. what it is, and and I think the same thing applies to the way animals are being treated in the industry and the way that they're being consumed. A lot of this is not some kind of you know vicious villain sitting in yep. an office you know and going ha 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 I'm going to torture. A lot of this is just everyday stuff that people just don't think about because they're too tired or too yep. numb, and it just like the giant machine just continues to roll. Yeah, tell people more about that concept, the banality of evil, because I think it's a really important one. And I actually just listened to a very good podcast. As a client, had someone who's a specialist in in Hannah Arendt's work. But what does that mean? Well, what might, is the banality you might, of evil? You, then you might know more, more than me. But, uh, I doubt uh, it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I didn't so, listen that carefully. So, so the idea of the banality of evil cam comes from, uh, from Adolf Eichmann's uh, trial in, in Jerusalem mm. in, in, in the early 60s, which Hannah Arendt covered hmm. at the time. Uh, so she, she, she listened to the whole trial. and, and uh, This is in Israel. Uh, this is in Israel. Eichmann okay. was uh, actually kidnapped in, in Argentina and brought wow. to Israel. This in itself raises all kinds of interesting questions. It is. Uh, and it's, uh, it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of terrifying, also kind of badass how the Israelis hunted down all the Nazis. It, it was terrifying I, and badass in, in equal measures. Yeah, because I'm not uh, a big fan of any sort of violent punishment, and that's obviously what a lot of them got. But on the other hand, I do believe in accountability, and it was a pretty so, powerful example of accountability. And, and this is, you know, basically as evil as it comes. So, yeah, you know, if, if, you're, if you're going to If you're going to support for anybody, Eichmann's your guy. So, so yeah, yeah, so they kidnap him and they bring him back to Israel and he stands trial. Was this and, Mossad? Who did this? Yeah, I think so. Mossad? Yes, okay. yes, yes. This is this is one place where, where the old country really excels is with this <laughs> this sort of thing. Uh, excels or, or, you know, or, or, you know, depending on your perspective. But uh, in any case, Eichmann is put on trial and says, I was just obeying orders. Yeah. And basically puts this in the context of working for a big governmental bureaucracy and, and doing what he's told. And when you see, for example, transcripts of the the, the Vanze committee that designed the final the final solution for Jews, which is basically to exterminate the, the, the Jewish people, you see that it's very matter of factly, it's very bureaucratic. Again, there's no kind of you know bloodthirstiness or or you mm -hmm. know or sadism or or something like that that goes into it. They just kind of go about their business. And, and, and this is what Arendt was trying to highlight with this context, concept of the banality of evil. She's like, look at this guy. He, he's basically a clerk. Mm -hmm. He's basically a bureaucrat. And, but he's dealing with this just like absolutely abhorrent, yeah. you know, monstrous plan to, to basically erase an entire people from, from the face of the earth. And he's just doing it matter-of-factly because that's his job. Yeah. No, you see that in so many different oppressive systems, whether it's parking in Chicago or a factory farm where all the workers themselves, like Timothy Patrider has written about how all of them say like, oh, I'm not the one who kills the animal because mm -hmm. it's so systematized and, and, you know, the work is, is so specialized. Like, you know, the person who hits the pig in the head with a bolt gun says, oh, I'm not killing them. I just hit, I knocked them unconscious. And the person who slits their throat and bleeds them out says, I'm not killing them. They're already unconscious when they come to me. And the person who's eviscerating them and taking all the organs out says, no, they already bled out. So I'm just tearing the organs out. So it's just by, by now it's a thing. Even within a factory farm environment where there are so many animals being slaughtered, virtually everyone, and he did extensive interviews showing this, said, like, I don't kill animals. Like, they all say, like, we don't kill animals. Of course. This is a slaughterhouse. Someone has to be killing animals. There are exactly. hundreds of thousands of animals being killed here, sometimes tens of millions. Like, the big slaughterhouse, I think he went to one of the largest cattle slaughterhouses in the world, but, like, you have chicken slaughterhouses that are literally doing tens of millions, hundreds of millions, I think, in a single year. 
You have the big Smithfield plant in North Carolina. They do 20 million pigs every year. And yet everybody says, I don't kill animals I don't here. kill animals. I don't exactly. kill animals. It's, it's all part of the system. It's all bureaucratized. And everyone just thinks, I'm just doing my job. Again, because the, the, the thought that I am complicit in mm -hmm. something terrible is just unbearable. It, it may well be that to some extent as activists, we are feeding this machine hmm. by communicating this message that complicity makes you a terrible, irredeemable Evil person, person. Yeah. rather than offering you an opportunity yeah. to be accountable and to take charge and to do better. No, and, and, and it may well be that, that the messaging around this complicity is, is, is not what we need because the shame just pushes people further into a cor corner and, and into yeah, yeah. denying responsibility. Yeah, I, there is so much truth to that. And I had uh, the sociologist, Doug McAdam, who might have actually been, I didn't even know you went to sociological meetings. That's pretty cool. As, a, as a law I professor. I was invited. This is the okay. first time I went. Okay, cool. What was the panel about? It was just about incarceration? The and panel? Was called paying for your time. It was about mm, so various was about ways in which all this low-level yeah. financial stuff creeps into, into yeah, okay. the criminal system. So Doug McAdam is a sociologist at Stanford. He's emeritus now. Great guy. Um, and he, he did some of the really pioneering work on civil rights activism and why it was effective and, and also why they were able to mobilize so many people because it was really just a, a historic achievement. Until the most recent protests in the wake of George Floyd's murder, civil rights movement was like one of the peaks of activism in American history. And you know, one of the, the things he's most known for is, is saying that the, the equation of social change is actually pretty simple. It's a concept that he coined called cognitive liberation. I was actually pretty surprised because when I told him about this and said, like, this concept has really inspired me, he's like, no, I don't like that. <laughs> I coined it, but I'm kind of done with that. I don't actually even remember why he doesn't like it. I think it's because he doesn't like fancy academic terminology mm. now, and it's kind of a fancy term for something that's a lot more simple. And it, the simple way to describe it, instead of cognitive liberation, which is a term he used in sociological papers and published peer-reviewed articles, is the equation for social change is just outrage and hope. But you need both. You need to be yes. angry about something, and you have to have this sense of grievance, like, oh, there's something not right about the world. But then you have to have a sense of, and not just hope, but collective hope. It has to be hope that we together mm -hmm. have a way to solve this. Like we're oh going gosh. to fix this. This comes up in Joanna Macy's work and it also comes up in law and society quite a bit. Huh. So Joanna Macy has this concept of despair work huh. where sort of the way to change the world. And this is, this is work that comes a lot from the sort of, you know, deep environmental activism and, and, and kind of like the, the, the ecologists that believe in deep ecology and like a sentient earth and things like that. They're like, mm -hmm. you really have to allow yourself to feel the despair and mm. the rage to be able to then have active hope. Like the, yeah. the hope, like without despair, there is no hope is basically mm. the message. And in law and society, there are papers that look at what motivates people to go and kind of like demand, you know, rights and demand, you know, the fixing of, of, of things that are evil. And they call this process uh, naming, blaming, and claiming. Hmm. that first you have to actually name what is wrong. wrong like you have yeah. to actually like allow yourself to feel the wrong. Then you have to figure out where the problem is. And only then can you sort of fashion a call to action. Interesting. Yeah. That actually reminds me of meditation. Cause I feel like one of the real benefits of meditation, and I've actually heard this is a benefit of various psychotropic substances too, <laughs> is you can identify something that was a malady in your thinking that you didn't even know was there. That until and, and you've really actually identified, it. yeah, and observe it, yeah, like and feel it, and that's that's one of the things of meditation. I think, at least, I feel like people don't have a proper understanding. They think, oh, I have to be Zen during my meditation. It's like, no, you just have to observe. It's and, not about numbing how yeah. you feel. It's about really Realizing, allowing yourself to yeah. observe how you feel. Yeah, 
and 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 really feel it. I mean, Tara Brock uh, uh, oftentimes uses an acronym called RAIN. Hmm. And, and the first step of RAIN is recognize, is to mm. just like really look into yourself and really figure out what you're feeling. Some people like Jack Hornfield also invite you to say to yourself the name of the feeling, feeling like yeah. sadness or grief or, or, you know, whatever it is. Incidentally, going back to parenting, I find that this is one of the most useful parenting tools that I have is rather mm, than, you know, if my that. kid is acting out is like, you know, my kid is marvelous and I throw myself in front of a bus for him, but he's not perfect. And sure. he is upset sometimes like everybody else. And, and so if there is something to just like encourage him to really feel what he's, he's feeling. like, it's okay. Yeah. It's, it, you know, it's not okay to do all kinds of crazy things, but it is okay to feel whatever he's feeling. And then we can find some way to address it. But yeah. just the, the power of saying to your kid, you're frustrated or you're yeah. outraged or you're sad. Even if it's like, yeah, I get that you're frustrated because your sandwich is cut into triangles and not yeah. into squares. That is like, <laughs> you are really upset. And meanwhile, I'm Is thinking, that a real thing for me? It's a real thing for is every little kid. It's really? like you find out that you don't have control over your life sure. and your sandwich didn't arrive in the way that you envisioned. Yeah. And you just, you go apeshit. And, and, and because, you know, it's as if, as, so you know, as if the, the, the outrages of grownups are not similarly yeah, crazy, no, right? Yeah. But it's like, just to... Half of the solution is to just acknowledge the fact that this is frustrating, to be sure. like, this is not what you expected. Like yeah. you were thinking of a triangle sandwich and then this thing showed up that is not what you expected. Yeah. No, I feel like it's kind of the inverse Voldemort phenomenon because in the Harry Potter movies, you know, you don't say his name because it gives him power. And I actually think with meditation for me, it's, it's the opposite. Like when you name the feeling you're having, it takes, away it takes the, the power. power away. So like when, when I was, I was meditating a lot after Lisa died, Lisa's my dog. It was just. Horrible, horrible. I mean, even just in saying her name now, just kind of can't see me right now, but I'm a little discombobulated. But um, yeah, and when I meditate, I just say like I'm feeling loss. Like, and, just, and I just say, okay, you know, this is what you're feeling. And, that, and that's okay. It's, it doesn't mean your life's over. It doesn't mean everything's gone. It doesn't mean there aren't good things for you to remember. Obviously, there's so many beautiful things I remember about Lisa too. But for, for a long time, the thing that helped me most is just, just naming it, just saying, this, this, is, is, exactly... this is what I'm feeling. And that, it, again, taking that observer's perspective exactly. really does help so much and make getting you, not having you completely controlled by every feeling you have. Like it's, there's something powerful about naming it and saying, this is what I'm feeling because it allows you to say, okay, this is, and this is how I can respond. You know, this is exactly. what I can do it about it. It gives you the little pause that you have to choose something different. And by the way, I cope in a very similar way with the loss of Lulu, who was very mm. close to me, my cat who died in 2016, yeah, who in many ways was the closest being yeah. to me, uh, in some ways even closer than my partner and my child. We yeah. had a very special bond and, and uh, it was a very tragic death because he was ran over by a car. Oh. And, and, and this is all Jesus. wrapped also with, with the Trump administration because it happened just a few days after the 2016 election right. and was indirectly related to the election. Um, the story is basically the, the, the 2016 election was also the election when the California voters rejected the death penalty abolition mm -hmm, proposition mm -hmm. that I was working so hard on and instead approved this very weird, you know, death penalty fix that doesn't work. And, and then I was on KQED the morning after and I was asked well, you know, uh, what, do you, what do you think about the victims? Like, doesn't this give something to the victims? And I was really worried because they were taking away basically appellate rights. Hmm. And, and the fear that we're going to execute an innocent, innocent person is, is, yeah. is really haunting. And I said, you know, if anything, people who have lost innocent loved ones should know how, what, a, what a scary prospect that is. And 
I, I hope I was tactful and sensitive enough in expressing this, but it still did not sit well with some people. And mm -hmm. it's, it's not going to come as a shock to you that I get death threats all the time. And, sure. and, and, but after the election, the death threats were a little bit scarier because a lot of people were crawling out of the woodwork who would not actually, you know, you know, I don't know if they would make good on it or not, but lots of unsavory yep. stuff was going on. And this particular threat also listed a date and, 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 and location for my wow. demise. And I was like, okay, you know, this I got to why, why did he threaten to kill you? Because you're just some liberal... To get back at me for like, you know, well, you'll show you, I'll kill you, and then you'll know what it's like to die, blah, blah, wow. blah, 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 whatever. Is, which, you know, when you think about it, is a funny way of, you know, <laughs> enforcing the value yeah. of human life, but okay. Sure. But in, but in any case, I was, I was spooked enough to say, okay, I need to report this to the police. And I sure. called the police, and they came to my house to get, uh, to get a statement, and they left the door open oh, and Lulu no. left and was run over by a car. Oh my God. And so all of this was sort of entangled together. I'm still carrying a lot of this trauma in, in yeah. my body, but just allowing my, not a day goes by that I don't think of him. Oh. And um, just naming the feeling, feeling of yeah. grief and loss is a big release. Yeah. No, I know. I know Lula meant so much to you. We've talked about him before. And oh, he, I don't he, think I ever met him, but just even the way you describe him. He was amazing. He yeah. was so wise. Yeah. He was so wise. Ugh. What, what connected you? What do you think made that bond so strong? We just kind of, we were on the same wavelength, you know, huh. when we wanted to sit, we would sit together <laughs> when we wanted to play. It was just like there was this perfect matching of energy. Yeah. There was a lot of wisdom in how he approached the world that I really appreciated. Yeah. Uh, I loved the way uh, we adopted him along with Gulu, who is still with us. Mm -hmm. uh, they were cellmates, basically, at the SPCA in, oh, the, same, yeah. uh, in the same cell. And Gulu was a, was a little silly as a kid and as a little uh, uh, kitten, and, and Lulu was constantly protecting him. Aww. One time, Gulu was lost, so we just let Lulu go, and he brought him back, back. home. Wow, damn. So, so there was just something about his wisdom that was yeah. so special. I, I really miss him. And, you know, it's, it's hard to tell if animals have a sense of humor. It's more <laughs> that they have a sense of fun, maybe. Yeah. But Lulu had a sense of humor. Really? Like you could see that he, like he found <laughs> things, you know, comical or, sure. or in, in ways that I have not seen with, with Gulu and Inti. They just don't, don't see the world in That's the same so way. That's so interesting. I, I, I do wonder about that. I wonder if anyone's written about this or researched this question. Do there animals, is, there is some do writing animals about have a this. sense of humor? There is some writing about this. The, the general opinion, I mean, animals, of course, differ dramatically sure. from each other, even individual animals, yeah, yeah. but it's... It's not so much a sense of humor, but there is a sense of fun or a yeah, sense of no, kind of absolutely. like, you know, being silly or, or, or something like that, but not so much that they find something humorous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so Lulu was, was very different from, from Gulu and Inti in, in that regard. Yeah, I know when Lisa was a, a little baby, she caused so many problems. This is actually one of the smaller problems she caused me, but she used to steal everybody else's food, human or non-human, the cats... The other dog, I had another dog, Natalie, at the time. She'd steal everyone's food, and she wouldn't even eat it. She would just grab it and shake her head like this and spray it everywhere. So maybe a and sense she, of mischief? or <laughs> No, and then she'd watch me clean it up, like with the happiest face, on, <laughs> and this glimmer in her eye. Like, there's something just really exciting about seeing me freak out and be like, No, Lisa, don't steal the cat's food again. No, there's cat food everywhere. And like on the ceilings, on the walls, in the refrigerator, it's like everywhere. And she just looked at me like, this is hilarious. This is awesome. Oh <laughs> this gosh. is so much fun. 
Um, which wasn't the best because I, I feel like sometimes I encourage the behavior by being too, right. by being too happy and just kind of, but she was just such a hilarious dog. And yeah, I think you're right too, that every individual animal does interface with the world in a very different way. So even if humor, just like human beings, there's some human beings that just aren't that funny and that's okay. You know, they're still human beings. They still are deserving of compassion true, and, and true. rights and respect. So, you know, if there's a dog out there, that's not quite as funny as Lisa. You know, I'm sorry. Lisa's setting a high standard for me. <laughs> You'll never be as funny as my little girl. But, you know, Aww. no. Uh, Oliver's pretty funny in his own way, too. He has lots of nightmares that, I don't know. Do your cats dream? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They dream of hunting, usually. Do they, really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, Oliver, I'm not sure what he dreams about. Sometimes he definitely has nightmares that are terrifying. And I'm, mm. I'm kind of tempted to wake him up. But do you know anything about whether it's actually true that waking people up during nightmares is bad? Is that actually bad? Is that true? Because I've heard that I the nightmare sure. process is like good and therapeutic for the brain, including for a child, like the child's having a nightmare. I've heard that you're not supposed to wake them up because there's something about like the neural engineering that's happening that you're not supposed to disrupt, but I, maybe it's made up. You know, funny, <laughs> funny enough, my kid asked me today, this morning, about why it is that he doesn't fully remember his dreams. Huh. And uh, there's a really awesome short story in Hebrew by Etgar Keret uh, about a dream monster that lives under the bed. And the minute you wake up, they grab your dream, dream and start eating it. Wow. And you kind of try to wrestle bits bad. of the dream out of the dream monster. Sometimes they eat the whole thing and you don't remember. Sometimes you only have bits and pieces. Sometimes you do manage to kind of like wrangle your dream back. Huh. So, so, and this is part of the... The Jewish religion? No, no it's just, just a, it's just, just a, a funny short, folk tale. Just a, a, a short story by, oh, by it's a an short author story. that I okay. that I like. Uh, and, and so I told this to my son about you know maybe yeah. the maybe the dream monster got a lot of your dream. Yeah, interesting. Last night, how did he respond? He was like thoughtful. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. well, he's having he's having more more complicated thoughts these days. He's graduating from preschool, which is oh, a wow. huge deal, and starting a new school in in cool. a couple of weeks. Yeah, you know, you were were you telling me were you the one telling me about some vegan kindergarten or preschool? There are vegetarian schools, okay. although he is not going to the vegetarian. He's not going school. to that one. We okay. were waitlisted uh, because such is such is the the universe of private education in, yeah. in San Francisco. But we're going to go to a really fabulous school. Yeah, uh, it's an independent school in the dog patch, and I think awesome. I think he's going to be very happy there. Yeah, I think I've heard somewhere that getting into a preschool in San Francisco is like as hard as getting into Harvard or something like that. Maybe you even told me that. that it's, the, it's, the percentage the, success rate is so low for parents. The, the extent to which, like the things you find yourself doing in the kindergarten admission cycle really make you question like how, how much you want to be part of that. Yeah. Like recording videos of your children, performing tasks and writing essays like... I didn't write essays like this for the academic job market, hmm. like about your family's relation to spirituality or family's relation to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Like you have to like really like put to, like things like people like I've been on appointments committees, like the things that people put in diversity statements for like mm -hmm. applying for an academic job and the competition is quite fierce. And I think we were very reluctant participants in all of this because we are big believers in public education. It's sure. just that many people who are believers in public education found what happened in the last few years in San Francisco very mm. dispiriting. Sure. So, Which is just all the schools shutting down. The schools and not basically shut down and, yeah. and the children did not receive any education for a yeah. couple of years. Do you, I know there's been massive fights over the school board. Do you blame the school board for that? Do you think they made mistakes? I mean, what is your thought on like, oh, all the controversy? Oh, there's definitely been ineptitude. Th yeah. There's no doubt. And and I think it's the struggle, and, and you and I have talked about this before. It's the struggle between kind of 
being very performative about social justice versus actually doing, doing social it. justice. It was yeah. like, you know, the whole debacle about how they were, you know, renaming 44 schools, schools and Googling yeah. them without any input from historians, just kind of like, yep, yep, maybe yep. this person was racist and maybe this person was racist. While at the same time, the best thing that you can actually do for underserved kids is to educate them yeah. so that they can catch up with the gap. Yeah. It's, or, or one of the most wonderful things about the preschool that Rio has attended for the last three years, which is just the most marvelous place, it's, it's uh, so much childcare uh, in, in, in downtown San Francisco, is that they don't do a lot of talk. They actually do social do justice in, uh, in action. Hmm. Like, for example, the school will do a movie night where every family watches a movie. And um, first of all, they give you all a Zoom link so that even people who can't afford the $3 to mm-hmm. watch the mm-hmm. movie on Amazon can actually watch it for free through the preschool. And they send every single kid home with treats and snacks hmm. so that even kids that are in the foster care system or have been taken out of home with a court order will be sitting in front of the movie and having popcorn. Or they have a a room to the side that has all these kind of basic foods so that if a family doesn't have food, they can kind of quietly go in there without being seen and take whatever it is that they need. Hmm. And and, and this is just so precious to me. It's just, there's so much And all the families that come into the same physical space and watching it together. Well, sometimes, Some sometimes, 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 when, but, yeah, but the there's COVID's just so much bad. thought yeah. given to the fact that we're going to give everybody like an equal starting point and, and doing it in such thoughtful ways without too, too much talk and without this kind of, you know, odious jargon that we always hear around these things, but just like quietly doing what needs to be done. Yeah. It's, it's, just, it's so beautiful to me. Like I, I, I would, I would like to see so much more of this happening on, on, a, on a citywide level. Yeah. So, so, so the, the truth is that many, many people who were looking forward to sending their kids to the public school system, even if they can't afford to do it, have had to flee out of the system. And now people are taking extra jobs, you know, driving for Uber or doing all kinds mm-hmm. of other things so that their kids, kids can, can go, go to, to, to a private yeah. school. Yeah. It's, it's depressing, but that's the way it is. And you think the main problem with the public schools is just they weren't even open? During COVID? Is I think that the it exposed main... a lot of problems that already existed okay. in the public and, schools. And that was just one of them, that the fact that the schools were shut down or were only having online instruction, which as far as I can tell, especially for young children, is basically not instruction at all. I you mean, know, I don't like, know it's if, not instruction yeah, at all. I don't all. know if you can do Zoom classes for four or five Even in children. law school, it was rough, <laughs> uh, for sure. And this is, you know, people That's in their funny. 20s. It's, it's, it's not easy. You, you, I had to it's do hard to get off TikTok when you're on Zoom. It is. And, and you know, Everyone's playing on their phones. And, and there's a lot of pedagogical adjustments that you have to make to, sure. to like, if, if it's a different medium. Like, I've completely changed the way that I teach huh. and actually learned a lot from this that I'm taking back into my in-person classes. Like, I've completely stopped lecturing. Really? Yeah, I've come to the conclusion that lecturing is a waste of time. So instead, I pre-record lecturettes that okay. cover the material. I, I want to flatter myself that they have a decent production value, like I have fun slides with uh-huh. all kinds of things going on. And people watch the lecturettes before coming to class. Yeah. And then we come to class, and I just I give a few pointers, I answer a few questions, and most of our time is spent working in small groups. Hmm. So people have to actually put together... Uh, uh, you know, a motion to suppress. Wow. People have to actually negotiate a plea bargain. Like they go into pairs, they get something that looks like a criminal case. It's an enormous amount of work for me on the back sure. end. Yeah. But they go to, 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 they come to class ready to negotiate with somebody else. Wow. They work in groups of five. They get, you know, um, 
bios for 50 fictional people and they have to pick a jury. Mm -hmm. so, so they have to actually wow. do these simulations in real time. So this is criminal procedure? This is criminal procedure. Wow. So it's, That's such a crazy way to teach criminal procedure. I mean, it, crazy in the sense that I've never heard of it. It's amazing. Being taught that way. It's, it's incredible. It's a lot of work for them on the sure. back end. It's an enormous amount of work for me on the back end, yeah. which I don't think they even come close to appreciating like how much yeah, work yeah. goes into creating it. But it's really rewarding. It's so worthwhile yeah. because people come to class and they're actually doing yeah, law. They actually work. know how to do law after that. They know how to be a lawyer. Yeah, I'm going to have to take back what I told Andre. Andre is a UC Hastings student who I think is going to take your crim pro class. And I didn't say this specifically about your class, but uh -huh. I, told, I told Andre and all of our team members on our legal team who are law students many, many times, you're not going to learn anything about the actual practice of law in law school. <laughs> it's, there's, there's a lot about you're practice gonna, that you learn only yeah. in practice, but, no, but I try you, to approximate. No, but that is how you actually learn. You learn by doing these things. Like, you know, so much of law school classes is just dealing with these abstract principles, you know, appellate and Supreme Court cases that are very far removed from the actual practice of law. And, oh, yeah. and the way you learn how to do the practice of law is do something like the practice of law. Exactly. Not read Supreme Court cases that, you know, probably will come up once every 20 cases you're involved in. And even exactly. then probably aren't going to matter that much. So yeah, so, so I'm, I'm glad that this pushed me to kind of create these changes to pedagogy, yeah. many of which I'm taking with me to, to the in-person classes. S yeah, so you did these in Zoom too. Like I you're did breaking this in people Zoom. into small groups and, and asking them to work together. This is actually easier to do in Zoom when you yeah, have a 90, a 90 person class. Absolutely. It's, it's yeah. a bit of a more complicated thing to break them into yeah. groups in, in, in a physical space. Sure. But you can, you know, you can make it happen. I, I have some plans on how I'm going to make it happen in the fall. Hopefully, sure. it'll uh, awesome. be successful. Did the law school push back at all? About the no, way you're they teaching? were delighted. Actually, they thought it was good because law schools can be such conservative places about things like pedagogy. In my view, we are view. a school that cares quite a bit about teaching, teaching. And, okay. and actually, there's a big difference between how I did Zoom teaching in spring of 2020 when I was just very rushed and, and mm -hmm. you know just recorded some things and tried to do it asynchronous, and when I put together this whole thing that I've just described to you, which I'm actually quite proud of. And we had this panel where some people were talking about their successes, and they were and they said, "Well, what made the difference for you?" Like. And I said, childcare, you know, the preschool wow. opened in the summer and then I yeah, had, had a little time, bit of actually. mental time to come up with this. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. I went to the University of Chicago Law School, which is also known as a place that they do care about teaching, but they also, they almost have the opposite approach. The reason I, you know, I, w I never taught there. I taught at Northwestern. So, but I was still exposed to the culture of the University of Chicago and they had such a draconian system of like insisting lawyers do or all the professors do things almost exactly the same way even to the point of dressing the same way mm -hmm. like it's one of the i don't know if this is still true now um and i actually just dropped by and saw some of my own professors a couple of days ago because i'm going to trial in a month and i thought oh, i should go see some of my old friends from law school which is all professors i didn't meet many students when i was in law school but when i was in law school and you know shortly after i graduated from law school all the professors were required to wear suits Oh, wow. Yeah. So everyone wears a suit. Everyone uses Socratic method. There was no mm -hmm. exception to this. You had to do it. And I don't even know what the evidence is on the Socratic method. Is it actually a good instruction tool? I, I don't know if you feel, but for those of you who don't know what the Socratic method is, it's a method whereby the professor basically teaches by asking a series of questions, but it's considered quite intimidating. And for some law students, I think outright terrifying because partly as an incentive to encourage students to do the reading they just cold call people on the spot and will say, present the facts of the case, you know, State mm -hmm. versus Tompkins or whatever it is, um, and describe the legal issues at stake and the basis of the opinion. And 
you know, you're kind of humiliated if you can't just say off the sure. cuff everything in the holding. You don't do that anymore? I don't do that at did all. Did you ever I, think I it was never, useful? I never you did never this. Found it useful. I run an okay. all-volunteer class. Wow. People are never required. So they can raise their hands. Yeah, people can okay. raise their hands, and if they don't want to, they don't have to. I figure, you know... Some people are talkers and some people yep. want to be transactional lawyers and they're not public speakers. Yep. And, yeah, yeah. and I, I just, I, I have a distaste for teaching people out of fear. I know yeah. that this, I, yes, it does force people to do the reading, but presumably if you're paying the enormous amount of money that you're paying to <laughs> and go it to is law an school, enormous amount of money. It, it is in your best interest to make something out of it. And if you're not making something out of it, that's your business. You're an adult. Yeah. That, that yeah. Rule by fear was definitely the way the University of Chicago operated. Um, but interestingly, I feel like the students who got the most out of it were the students who were not afraid. Exactly. And, and like, you know it, like me, honestly. And, like I wasn't that afraid. And I said lots of stupid stuff. I got humiliated and called out by one of my professors. But I, partly because I just didn't care that much about grades mm -hmm. and I didn't care that much about my reputation in the law right. school. Like I, mean, I was able to engage in the material in like a more real way. There's, there's, there's two thoughts I have about that. One of them is exactly this idea of ego because when I came to grad school and I would say something yeah. stupid in class, I would, you know, torture myself. Oh my God, Hadar, everybody thinks you're a <laughs> dumbass. And, yeah. and then I was like, you know what? You're not that important. Nobody gives a shit about yeah, you. No everybody has their own yeah. business. Nobody remembers. You know, just get out of yourself. Yeah. But, but the most interesting thing about this is recently I've been thinking a lot about kind of tough love and, and, and is it worth it? Mm -hmm. So there's a scandal that's brewing right now in Berkeley with the swim team. So Terry McKeever, who is the, the coach of the swim team in Berkeley, uh, was recently exposed as being quite abusive and hmm. humiliating to some of the swimmers. And this is a person who's brought, you know, Natalie Coughlin to, you know, oh, athletic wow. victories. And, and this is like an Olympic coaches gold the US, right? She coaches the, the, the U.S. Olympic team and, wow. and, and has, you know, there's amazing Olympic swimmers that, okay. and Olympic champions that came out of Cal. And, and I remember really idolizing the team because I used to, you know, sw being swim, in grad school yeah. and whenever I give a talk at Berkeley or I teach, I, I swim in the same pool. Wow. I used to play games with myself where if I can do one lap to, you know, two of Missy Franklin's, then I guess I'm doing okay. But w was uh, Missy Franklin actually there? Yeah, there were like training, she was literally training right in the there. lanes next to me. Wow. So, so, so you're training next to Olympic so, swimmers? So, so all of which is to say, yeah, but obviously not in the team, just like <laughs> sure. swimming laps much yeah. slower than them. But but because of that, I'm really interested in what happens there and this exposure of Terry McKeever, who is somebody that I really idolized as yeah. apparently quite monstrous to the swimmers, some of whom attempted suicide or wow. contemplated suicide, has been horrible. And that kind of made me think, is there really something to this sort of old school thought that in order to get extraordinary results out of people, you have to be mean to them? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, we've always heard about this is, I mean, this brings me also back to the Larry Nassar issue and to sure. all these like exposures that we're now seeing about coaches like Alberto Salazar and, and all kinds of people that were now, some in the wake of Me Too and some in the wake of just generally this generation being more sort of attuned to voicing grievances for better sure. and worse, we're all of a sudden finding out about all this unsavory stuff. And I'm wondering... Do we actually have any sort of empirical confirmation that you cannot get extraordinary results out of people without treating them like shit? Mm -hmm. And, you know, to the extent that I've made something of my own life, I, I don't know, time will tell, it, or, or, you know, was successful in grad school, nobody was mean to me. Hmm. And, and my dissertation advisor, who is now my very dear mentor and friend, Malcolm Feely, who is a, a true star and pioneer in, in law and society... Never once did I hear a crossword from him. Never mm. once did I have a conflict or a disagreement with him. And he just shone in the sky of my life like a fatherly son. Mm. Just, just amazing and encouraging to me in every way. Did he offer critique? 
Yes, but it was always offered so kindly and, yeah. and in a supportive way. Like I yeah. was never, I never walked out of there feeling anything but mm. this person loves me and wants me to be a great scholar. Yeah. And and so I'm, that really makes me wonder if if like this kind of like this where is this kind of old school idea that we have to be mean to people to get results sure. come from? Yeah. And you know what? Even if this is kind of like this is kind of dark tea time of the soul. So so hang with me. Even if let's assume just for kicks that yes. Like that you have to be mean to people to get them to be Olympic champions or to break the four minute mile or whatever. Is it worth it? Mm. Yeah. Like, it, I mean, so, so in the Beijing Olympics, uh, Speedo came up with a swimsuit, with this tech swimsuit uh, called the, 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 the laser. Uh, and, and people swam really fast distances mm -hmm. because apparently the thing made, made people more sleek in the water. Yeah, you know, I whatever. I read about this. Now Sounds it, really cool, actually. It, it was very cool, but it was also kind of disturbing because not everybody had access to the mm, suits, which were quite so pricey. Expensive. Yeah. And nowadays, those suits are forbidden in the sport. Really? And all the records that were broken in Beijing have a little asterisk wow. next to them. I didn't realize that. And that made me think, I wonder if all the records that people are breaking now because of coaches that are like, you know, cussing yeah. them and abusing them and humiliating them, if that's going to have I'm an asterisk, to, like, yeah. you know, achieved via torture. torture. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm of two minds of this because I, I definitely agree with Jonathan Haidt's hypothesis about the coddling of the American right. mind, right? I think that the idea that any sort of disagreement or challenge is is violence or harm is is a big problem on the left because especially as activists, that's part of what you're committing 100%. to doing. You have to find disagreement. You, you have to talk to people who disagree with you and to make you a little uncomfortable. You have to sometimes sacrifice, and, but, but at the same time, it should be a voluntary sacrifice, not something you're forced to do, and it should be one that's done with a lot of support around you, you know? Right. So, and, so and I, it, on the one hand, I think, like, especially on the left, we've probably gone too far in the direction of saying, no pain, you know, there can't be anything that makes me even the least bit uncomfortable, otherwise it's, it's got to be, you know, some monster doing something horrible. But on the other hand, I also think that these historical models, I mean, even just thinking about childcare, like in, in mm -hmm. parenting, you know, I was hit as a kid and a lot. And um, I think it did affect my relation to my parents, you know, and my mm -hmm. dad. I love my dad. Don't get me wrong. He's an amazing human being. Like he's so generous and just taught me so much of what I know and understand about kindness. But that's just kind of the way they did things back then, especially exactly. among Chinese communities. And I think it did create a different dynamic. I still to this day don't have the sort of intimate relationship with my father that I know a lot of like, American kids have mm -hmm. because we just didn't talk about things. There was a little bit of fear that if I said the wrong thing or did the wrong thing, I could be punished very severely. And that doesn't create the trust that, you know, sure. a lot of parents might have with their children. For sure. And, and I think there was also a very different approach toward things like bullying. I mean, so mm. I was sadistically bullied in, in, in yeah, elementary and middle me. school. And, uh, and even though I expressed my distress and I basically said to my parents, here's what's happening. Partly I was disbelieved, mm -hmm. uh, and partly there was this notion that this is going to make you stronger, this is going to make you mm. better. It is true to some degree that <laughs> it was a gift in the sense that it does give you an opening into understanding other people's suffering. Mm -hmm. I mean, nowadays there's this, uh, sometimes there's this thinking that you can't possibly know what another person suffers. And, you know, I've never been on death row, I've never been in prison during COVID, I've never been in solitary, like... All of these, all of this is true, but I sure as hell know what it's like to be lonely and hated and sure. disbelieved. And that ember of human emotion is a connection. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, I got to wonder, you know, 
I think that people in good faith thought that they were doing something good with this, that they really were toughening up their kids for, for mm -hmm. a rough world. If our approach now is, is really where it should be, where we kind of do not tolerate bullying, now there's concerns that we might have been going to the other side and we might be demonizing kids that are acting out as mm -hmm. bullies and, and you know, maybe dragging them into disciplinary things and you know that already starts kissing the juvenile justice system in wow. some ways and kind of like it's very hard to find the balance between what are experiences that slap you out of your comfort zone sometimes in in very unpleasant way. ways yeah. but ultimately you know make you a more resilient person and what is destructive to you yeah and and i think that part of our discomfort with the whole kind of like where is the right with this where is the left with this how much is enough you know how much is too much comes from the fact that it is very difficult yeah, to come up with these boundaries yeah it is yeah i mean i think it is difficult to come up with some of these boundaries i also think that the left in particular in my view is missing the mark by a wide margin there's some easy cases <laughs> that the left is is treating as cases of some sort of monstrous oppression when um you know it could be something as simple as disagreement so like i'll give you an example even even just policing and crime um I'm, I'm a prison abolitionist, and I was very supportive of defunding the police. I have good friends, like my friend Layton, who didn't support it, who thought, well, I'm concerned about safety, and there's a lot of crime. And, you know, when my wife and my kid are walking down the streets in San Francisco, I, I, I'd like there to be an officer there. Mm -hmm. And the idea that someone for just expressing that opinion, who otherwise is a progressive person, is now a monster ostracized. and a racist and has to be ostracized and is unsafe to have in our communities mm -hmm. was very commonplace, very commonplace in leftist circles. I, and again, I I, I'm not on his side of this. Like mm -hmm. I actually, I, I think, you know, we incarcerate five times as many people on a per capita basis as China. There's not much evidence that long prison sentences actually stop crime. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm skeptical of the evidence of policing and crime. I don't think it's necessarily the case or really probably ever the case. And I've had terrible experiences with police myself. Like, and I've had debates with Leighton about mm -hmm. this, but I don't think just because he disagrees with me about some policy he's necessarily a monster or a racist. And we, I think the left really, has been too quick to make those jumps. I think we really need to open spaces where people can debate this in good faith yes. without the fear that they're going to be demonized for not kind of walking in lockstep with a groupthink. And I will say that some of the successes that I've had with this have been around presenting ideas, not using the sort of this kind of abolish, dismantle jargon, but just actually giving people examples yeah, from examples. their own lives. A classic example is just like two minutes from where we're sitting now here in the Tenderloin in San Francisco. So during the early months of COVID, the Tenderloin basically became an open drug market. Uh, mm. Not just, you know, nonviolent interactions, but also like people were getting shot on a daily basis wow. to the point that my students were afraid to leave the dorms. Like they were in the Jeez. tower. I would talk to people on Zoom and they're like, I'm just not stepping foot outside the dorms. At that point, uh, the ACLU contacted me and said, you know, we want to really fight against gang injunctions. Like mm -hmm. and we need you to write an amicus brief saying that it's not that bad. And I'm like, you know, I love you guys, but I'm, I'm not going to lie. It is that bad. Yeah. And wow. then uh, there was a lot of, there was a lot of controversy about what to do about this. And a couple of times the SFPD went and like kind of like swept down the streets, yep. but you can't just sweep away human misery because yeah, ultimately yeah. this whole market is fed from, from human misery, from homelessness yeah. and pain and mental illness and, and addiction. And, and, and then, uh, uh, to their great credit, our black students association came to the Dean and said, we know that you have to do something, but it can't be this. Hmm. And Hastings ended up partnering with urban alchemy. So mm. there are practitioners of urban alchemy throughout the Tenderloin and in many streets in San Francisco. Yeah, I see them. 
Right. So they monitor the public toilets, they monitor the playgrounds, and they're just walking around resolving conflict in peaceful ways. Hmm. If they see, for example, that somebody's being, you know, stocky or threatening, they'll kind of gently position themselves between them and the other person. Yep. They save lives like four times a week with naloxone. Wow. They've saved people here from, from ODing. They, they, you know, they divert people to services. It is true that oftentimes all they can do is just push people a couple of blocks down, which is a huge, a huge, a usual problem with, with urban crime but they are doing a lot of good through peaceful means yeah. and what's amazing is how can they do it well all of them are people who are formerly incarcerated Almost, yeah. and many of them are lifers wow. and they're bringing the same social skills that they learned in the yard to deal with these very kind of immersed in suffering populations and 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 when you talk about this to people who actually experience the tenderloin who are all like you know i'm pro public safety and pro crime and i'm like you know have you noticed that SFPD has a lot less to do in the street because there are people who, mm -hmm. who are taking care of these problems in peaceful ways? This is what defund the police could look like on a daily basis. It's not some crazy radical idea. Yeah. It's it's just it's good for everybody. It's yeah. like it's completely changed the energy in yeah. the streets in in a really palpable way. And and when you say it like that, it's different. I mean, I encouraged my students to go and talk to urban alchemy practitioners in the mm -hmm. street. And one of them talked to one of the guys who was monitoring the public restroom, the, the pit stop, and said to him, you know, I'm really worried that people are just going to go in and they're going to shoot up. Mm -hmm. and, and the urban alchemy practitioner said, you know, that is probably going to happen, but aren't they better off doing it with a clean needle in sure. a place that is safe than yep. shooting up fentanyl and, and risking? And then that person's like, Oh my God, you're right. Ultimately, this is it's better. better. Yeah. So, so I think it's through these kinds of engagements that people come to kind of like change yeah. their mind without having to worry about which camp and I, am I in and are people going to want to be my friend if I express, you know, some opinion that, I mean, for what it's worth, I'm a legal realist. I'm like, I do think that crime is real. Mm -hmm. It does have real victims and that there are people that are truly dangerous and really need to be locked up. Yeah. There's a lot fewer of them than the number that we actually lock up. But I don't think that all crime is fiction and that mm -hmm. everybody is behaving in lovely ways and there's no danger. It's, I mean, I work in violence prevention coalitions. I know the harm that violence wreaks on communities. It's not just police violence, it's civilian violence as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think there has to be room to talk about this because this is real yeah. and it does impact people's lives. And I think these conversations in many professional settings have become very difficult to have. Yeah, they have, yeah. No, I love that, the idea of just making it concrete instead of using the you know, whatever buzzwords are trending on Twitter to decide what side of an issue you're on, you know, defund the police or not defund the mm -hmm. police. Let's talk about specific policy solutions and whether they'd work or not. And I'd actually be pretty curious to find out what my friend Layton thinks about spending a little more on urban alchemy and mm -hmm. taking a little bit away from the police. I wouldn't surprise me if he's supportive of it. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that arguably is defunding the police. You're taking right. money for the police. Um, yeah, I think you told me about urban alchemy before. Now that I live in San Francisco, uh, Hadar is in my space for the first time. And sounds like you like it, which I'm very happy about because I'd love to have you and Chad and Rio over again sometime soon. But uh, I see the urban alchemy folks all the time because I live in the neighborhood. I go um, to Orange Theory every day. And so I'm running, you know, basically on mission and then past mission. And uh, I didn't even realize who they were at first. I just thought to myself, man, there's so many really friendly people on the streets of San Francisco. Because there, some of them are just, even, I didn't, I didn't even realize that there were doing these things for the unhoused population or to try and resolve crimes and violence in a more nonviolent way. I just thought there were people for some nonprofit organization who are trying to create like a, a more positive community. 
because there's this there's this guy who every day I go running by him to Orange Theory because I run to Orange Theory. And I'm, you know, I'm running not at a super fast pace, just at a warm-up pace, but fast enough that it's, it's a little bit, you know, of an intrusion to say hi to someone. But he just always says, and not, not in like an aggressive way, but he was just like waves at me and says like, have a nice day, sir. That's it. It makes and it's, such and a it, difference. It really is. It's like, oh, I, you know, that guy who doesn't even know me and has no idea what's going on in my life and has no reason to wish me well, just, just said this nice thing to me. And, he, and I, you know, honestly, I've never even introduced myself to him, but I, I always wave at him too and I say, hey, you know, thanks. It's been, it's been wonderful But it's, it is really nice. It is interesting though. Do you know what the, I, I know there are some people who hate urban alchemy too within like the homeless advocacy community. Cause I have one friend who lives in an SRO. Um, I won't say the name cause they might not want to be out in the open criticizing who told me some really nasty things about them. And I don't even remember what it was, but again, I just, I don't even know what to believe anymore nowadays. Cause there's so much out there that everyone's getting criticized for all sorts of reasons. And, 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 and it well may be, maybe a legitimate criticism. Absolutely. No, I mean, okay. the person who said this to me is someone I trust a lot. And I, I think, they, they have personal experiences because they're, right. they're living in an SRO. An SRO is, um, what does SRO stand single for? Single room Single room occupancy hotel. It's basically a very low-income housing that usually is at least partly publicly supported where unhoused folks can find a place that they can actually call their own. You know, they mm-hmm. don't have to live on the street. So I don't know. I don't know if you're familiar with any of the critiques. So there are critiques. The, the Chronicle actually published an article that's somewhat critical oh, of that's them right. recently. And my sense it's like financial read, corruption, right? Yeah, or something like and, that, and that they were not using their funds. Or right. at least hinting that yeah. there's financial, yeah. uh, and, and, and you know, the idea that they might have expanded a little bit too quickly and sure. there's less quality control or what have you. Yeah. I have to say the sense that I got is it is good to look at any issue from a variety sure. of perspectives and nobody should be immune of critique, but they should have talked to some of us who live and work here mm. to see what a difference it makes. I mean, I can't even tell you how many students have told me a story, for example, a female student walking down the street and there's somebody who's kind of walking too close to her or intimidating her in some way. And, you know, an urban alchemy practitioner were kind of very subtly without seeing, without saying anything, without being into, just kind of positions themselves between, yeah, between her and the person. Wow. Okay. And it just like transforms the yeah, person's experience of crossing the, the street. No, it takes away awesome. the threat without having to be confrontational about yeah. it. It makes an enormous difference. I want to have someone who, part of that program join this podcast now. Because I, I think be so it cool. sounds fascinating. And I'm. And I also just, I'm going to make a hundred percent commitment to you to start talking to them too, instead of just running by them because I've definitely noticed it. And I, I've talked to them on a couple of occasions because uh, we've done some food serves and I think we've talked to some, or not, oh, we've done a couple of vegan food serves. This is like Priya's big project. She loves serving vegan food to people. So she just makes a bunch of sandwiches and we are giving them out to mostly unhoused folks, but I think probably some urban alchemy folks as well, just because we're giving them to everybody. Sure. Um, but I haven't had like a deeper conversation about theory and I'm not even theory. I mean, theory is like a high fluent term. Just, you know, what is your, what do you think about all this? What, like, what do you think? Like? Why are you here? Just yeah. why, why are you here? And like, what, why does this matter to you? And I like, I've definitely said hello and said like, Oh, thanks for doing what you're doing. But I've never gotten deeper into what they're doing, even though there are ever present, especially in this community. Like Tenderloin is just adjacent to where, yeah. where I'm living right now. I live mm-hmm. in South of market, but I live right on the border of Tenderloin sure. and South of market. And sure. for those of you who don't know, Tenderloin is the community in San Francisco that's known as like the high drug high crime, high homelessness neighborhood of San Francisco. So it's, it's been interesting. And, um, and actually been, I don't want to make this too like fucked up in the way. And I, I could see how this could be interpreted as fucked up, but, um, I feel actually it's been good for me because you know, you know, I ran for mayor in Berkeley in 2020 and I talked enormously about homelessness, but in Berkeley, the homelessness is kind of like 
not that adjacent to you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like out next to the highways. And honestly, this is a little messed up. Not a little messed up. I might be very messed up. A lot of it is because they're just pushed there. You know, they kind of push there. The city of Berkeley and um, the Department of Transit just have basically been fighting. And Mm -hmm. the city of Berkeley thinks, okay, if they're on the highway, then we don't have to take responsibility. Yeah, we don't have to deal with them. Um, But... And people still have concerns, but it's not as ever present and it doesn't feel like it's, it's right next to your home. Exactly. But where I'm, where we're having this podcast right now, there are people sleeping within a few dozen feet of mm-hmm. here in tents. Um, and I see them every day. And the part that I, I was going to say that I think may, may be a little messed up, but if it's messed up, it's messed up. I'm going to say it anyways, is it actually has been kind of gratifying to me to see it more up close and just understand all sides of the issue because right. you can't i feel not like look yeah it's i and um i think on net it has it hasn't really changed my policy perspectives on homelessness i still think that permanent supportive housing is the right approach we shouldn't be criminalizing that we should be doing like drug replacement therapy all like i mean the cliched progressive things i'm pretty supportive of in <laughs> fact even more like i'm pretty right. radical in of my course. views on this like i think we should decriminalize all drugs and all these things but the thing it has done for me that has been very helpful is it's, uh, it's given me a lot more empathy for people who have expressed concerns. And we were talking about, um, you know, having like these direct personal experiences and, and how it creates a little more empathy. I think that's just true in general in life that, you know, it's, it's one of the things that uh, led me to leave the academy. Not that I would have gotten a tenure track position anyways, but I felt like at least in the fields that I was working in, you know, and I think this has changed in economics to, to quite some degree over the last 10, 15 years since I left the profession. But a lot of it was just like looking at data from computers instead of just being out there on the front lines observing things in the field. Like mm-hmm. there are some fields like anthropology and even sociology where field work is often a huge part of your dissertation. Economics is not like that. You know? Right. It's, it's, it's just it's, collecting it a bunch of data. It is changing. Yeah. And actually, um, one of my professors at MIT, Esther Duflo, just won the Nobel Prize. And I think she's one of the youngest people ever to win the Nobel Prize. I think she's like 43, 44, very young. Um, and a huge part of the reason she won it is because she does field work. Mm-hmm. Like she's, she doesn't just study global poverty by looking at data. She's collected data herself from the real world by going to India and, you know, sub-Saharan Africa and these places to just see how these things are unfolding. And one of the things she points out is just the amount of hypothesis generation, the number of hypotheses you can generate when you are there just observing, even if your ultimate focus is the data, you're just not going to understand the data in the same way if you're not out there in the field. So anyways, um, I want to ask you about the bigger picture because as you know, I'm going to trial in a month and we've talked a lot now about how power distorts the rule of law and our legal system. And I think both of us are legal realists about this and understand that the Mm -hmm. law that's written on the books is often not the way it unfolds on the streets. But what do you think big picture is the most important thing for those of us who are concerned about the distortion of our legal system by power? What can we do? You know, I was actually, when I was walking here, I was thinking a little bit about kind of like, what's my, what's my freshest take on, on, you know, on the trial and on, and on what's going on. And, and one of the things that I've realized, I don't know if you agree with me is, When I look at everything that we've done to get together in terms of kind of like our efforts to save animals and to save the people that rescue animals from all kinds of nefarious consequences, 
is that we've ultimately had more success with all kinds of technical lawyerly tricks mm. than we've had with actually making an argument about suffering. Mm. Like one example is what we've recently had to do with comparing the North Carolina and California yeah. burglary laws because... Yeah, we won that one. So shockingly. we won that one, but, but, <laughs> but, but, but consider for a minute how and why we won that one, right? Yeah. Because it wasn't so much that the winning argument was, listen, this is not a criminal. This is a person who is improving the world by, yeah. by saving animals from suffering. Like it's ridiculous to, to think about him as a criminal, which is really what we wanted to say. Yeah. The success was to use a very technical legal oh, construct yeah, called the categorical approach and basically take the North Carolina burglary statute and overlay it on top of the California burglary statute and say, yeah. hey, there are things that count as burglary in North, Carol in North Carolina that do not count, count as burglary yeah so that's a trick and you know i don't know about you i get kind of like some measure of pr professional satisfaction yeah. from being able to play these games it's kind yeah, of like yeah. hey i'm actually a good lawyer but but you <laughs> know what like but ultimately that is not the argument that we really believe in i mean it's of course it's it's an important argument and all that but that's not the point yeah uh, i mean what's happening here is can, can i just say i haven't thanked you on this podcast for oh. saving my license because I mean, you and Jonathan, the, the lawyer you put us in touch with, um, were very, very important. <laughs> well, I'm glad I, you helped. The, actually, before I talked to you and Jonathan, I was pretty defeated. I was pretty much convinced, you know, like, what's the point? Well, They're, I'm really psyched that so, we prevailed. I think yeah, it was you amazing. were. You were very psyched. And I was like, I, I was skeptical because we've, you know, I've just had so many defeats now in the legal system in, in many cases where I thought we clearly should win. And this one was not one that I thought we right. clearly should win. Yeah. And you know, so, so here's, so here's my freshest take on this. Yeah. So in the early years of litigating the death penalty in, mm -hmm. in, in the U S uh, anti-death penalty advocates were making the argument that the death penalty was cruel and unusual punishment, which yeah. is forbidden under the, the, the Eighth Amendment uh, uh, to the and Constitution. It and it, it is. And it is. You know, it's barbaric. You're killing somebody. It's barbaric. It's immoral. It's all of these things. But when you make that argument, which is how everybody in the anti-death penalty community really feels, yeah. you don't get anywhere. Mm. Because the Supreme Court is pro-death penalty and nothing is going to change it. Yeah. So the, what, what successes the movement has been able to have in the last few years all come from nibbling at the edges yeah, of yeah. the death penalty by saying, okay, but it can't apply to juveniles, but it can't apply to people with mental disabilities, but you can't kill people with this particular chemical or with that particular chemical. So all of this is all kinds of technical lawyerly ways where you're trying to outsmart kind of like the basic doctrine that is against you without really confronting head on the thing that is really evil. And that made me think that perhaps... This is what we should really use in these activist yeah, trials yeah. is to kind of like try to be more modest about our aims. Like if yep. it, like I, th there's this tension here, right? Because, because both you and I and many other people who are facing these kinds of things, either as lawyers or p people who are going to face them personally. And, and let me just use this opportunity to say, you know, I'm not facing any risk by, by helping with this. And, and I'm so appreciative of the fact that you're willing to take on the risk. It's just immense bravery. Like I'm, I'm, I'm so proud of you and I'm so mm. proud that you're my friend. It's just like, I, I have so much appreciation for this. And, I wouldn't and, be able to do it without you. So, Justin, I mean, it takes everybody. Like no, it takes I really everybody. wouldn't. I wouldn't be doing these things if not for the fact that I know they're credible, brilliant people who are legal academics who support this work. And it's, it's, but, and, and at the yeah. same time, I mean, I can't just like sit in my office and like there, there have to be people that are brave enough to be willing to face the consequences on their own flesh hmm. for, for this to happen. And I'm just like, 
so wowed by the, the, the big brave heart that is needed to do this work. Yours and that of many other yeah, people that absolutely. are facing similar. Going back to the ALF days even, mm -hmm, you know. Absolutely. But, but, but see, here's the thing. I've, I've started thinking that, that perhaps what we really struggle with in these cases, on, on one hand, is what we really want to use these cases for, which is to really make the political case that what is happening in these places behind closed doors are just atrocities that are horrific and we want the public to see them. And basically using the whole trial as a vehicle to get the footage from these, mm -hmm. even calling them farms is a euphemism, from, sure. from these just like killing you know fields, getting them out there so that people can see what, what horrible suffering is, is inflicted on these innocent beings. And at the same time, you see how resistant the system is to that. And I'm like, okay, if we started this podcast by talking about how important it is for you to be well, so you can continue doing the work, I'm like, okay, having somebody martyrize themselves in prison takes them out of the circulation of the movement mm -hmm. in, in, in like, and makes them less useful than, than they were. I mean, thinking even about like people from the ALF who kind of like have gone through the, the incarceration thing and come out and, and. And it's never the same, of yeah. course. And and I'm thinking, okay, so maybe we should be more modest with what we expect from these trials. We don't kind of like, it's not going to be the political spectacle that we want it to be, but maybe what it's going to be is a grounds for us to be creative with these lawyerly tricks. Like mm -hmm. here's an example. And, and by the way, the tricks are not like some sort of devious thing because they all have this deep ideological thing behind them. Because consider the fact that, for example, one of the arguments we've been trying to present in cases of larceny is the dispute over the value of the animal that's mm -hmm, being taken mm -hmm. out of the farm, right? So, so like for example, in the in the you know in the chickens case or whatever, there's all this dispute of kind of like how much does the chicken cost, yep, how much yeah. does the pig cost, and and the reason for that is that larceny laws typically require that you've taken something that has value. Mm -hmm. In California, it has to be, have a certain it has to be above a certain threshold of value. Yeah. And then the debate becomes like the, 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 the defendants in these cases, the, the activists will say, well, this was an animal that was so sick and injured and, and, and maybe even dying. And, and we've all had the, the heart aches of getting animals out just to see them die outside after a few days. So, so to, well, this is not really like, you're, you're not really losing money on this animal because this animal doesn't have any value. And then you face this conflict because on one hand you're saying to yourself, oh my God, like I'm playing on their field now. Yeah. Now we're debating debating value when I don't see this yeah. as a debate over property at all. Like I am saving a person. I'm saving somebody who is alive out of this. And, and I don't want to talk about the money. But on the other hand, I think that kind of like bringing the question of value to the forefront does raise a lot of questions for everybody. It's like, why are we talking about value yeah. with, with respect to, to, to these beings. And, and, and I think there's room to innovate there that we should, we should be using. We should be using these lawyerly tricks Tr yeah. because first of all, just for the utilitarian purpose of getting you guys off, because, you know, we need you, <laughs> we need you out there, you know, you know, living your life free and, and continuing the struggle, but also because every other kind of like analytical victory that we have is building things incrementally. Yeah. It's like there has to be a balance between our desire to kind of like really bring in the difficult issues of like what kind of face does society have if we're doing these atrocious things, you know, behind the slaughterhouse doors. Yeah. And at the same time, the fact that, you know, we need you guys to, to, to continue your work on, on the outside. And, and 
for better or for worse, this is how the legal process works, is you make all these kind of like ingenious arguments, some of which are very technical. And, and I was kind of like after the, after the whole kind of like California bar debacle played mm -hmm. out, and I was like, well, this is good. Like, I'm really pleased <laughs> with myself. I'm actually not you a bad be. lawyer. This is fun. <laughs> I was like, okay, but we never actually got to talk about the fact that Great it is animals, preposterous yeah. to think of Wayne as some kind of criminal. Because after all, so, okay, so here's a story for you. I did a study a few years ago about the whole moral character business because mm. the California bar, like any other bar in North America and in other places, screens people based on their criminal record. And, uh, and I have students, and, and there are many people in California who have criminal records, who have been arrested or spent their whole life in juvie or even you know did time in prison, and they want to be lawyers in California, and they mm -hmm. have to go through something called the moral character process, which is basically there's a committee, and you sit in front of them, and there's this whole kind of like, a little bit like in Shawshank Redemption, like, have you rehabilitated? Oh, yes, no danger to society <laughs> here, sir. You yeah. know, that kind of thing. It's and, a great movie, by and, the way. and so I interviewed people who went through this process about what it was like for them. Hmm. And what was amazing to me is that many people without any prompting from me have said, this is the worst thing that ever happened to me, the worst wow. experience of my life. And this is people who had done time huh. and just sitting there in that room, you know, being shamed by this group of strangers in suits was just such yeah. a, such a humiliating experience for them. And, and then I'm kind of thinking, what is the purpose of all this? So I talked to an ethics lawyer. Who I so why do they feel so much shame? Because they, well, because, you they know, were they making false confessions? Do they the feel time, like they had to perform? So, or? Okay, so, so by the time you've, you've kind of clawed your way out of this life, and yeah. for some people this is a very unsettled youth with you know, lots of stints in juvie and group okay. homes and things like that. You've clawed your way out of that. You managed to get to community college. You transferred to a good college. You made you it to law, law school. school. You made it through all three. Right, so. You've put a distance you're, between you're bringing yourself. Them all, and then all it kind of back. compresses the yeah, timeline okay. between you and your shame. Okay. It, it, it compresses the timeline between you and your shame. And, and people are like, and, and all of a sudden it's all it's coming back. back to me. Wow. Yeah. And, and it's really traumatic. And then there's this whole kind of, you know, I now have to talk about things that are actually really complicated as if they're kind of like this little, you know, community theater, you know, morality play. You know, I was bad. I mm -hmm. feel remorseful. You don't get to give any of the social context of, sure. you know, what made you who you are. I've had numerous people in the study who said, yes, I understand. I am remorseful. But, you know, I was wrong too. And the story is much bigger than... And what it looks like from the core transcript mm. and you know any discrepancy between what you revealed when you tried to get into law school and what ends up being revealed is like are you hiding things are you obstructing justice whatever and people are like listen i went in and out of juvie like throughout my whole teenage years i don't actually remember like I where i so. was for for the 10 years that i was a teenager so there's a lot of trauma that goes into that and and i think and and so so up a big part of kind of like, so why are we engaging in this whole exercise? I went to an ethics lawyer and I said, why do you think the bar is like so adamant to kind of like keep these people out when so many of them say that this is what brought value to their practice, right. yeah. that they wanted to change the world for the better because, because of what of they've experience. been through. Yeah. And then the person says, listen, the bar is trying to keep psychopaths out of the legal profession, which cracked me up, by the way, because, you know, if you're looking for psychopaths, uh, you know, <laughs> so, so if you're if you're actually actively searching for psychopaths, the legal you know, profession is fertile legal ground. Is, is full, fertile ground. Fertile ground. But it's like, okay. Both of us have had experiences of that, I'm sure. We're trying to find proxies for yeah. psychopaths. And and so so when we're finding this this license, like your license, I'm like, okay, Wayne is ex the most like diametrically opposed person to a psychopath that I can think of. Mm -hmm. 
it's it's like, like it's so absurd to me that like all of these screening mechanisms are being applied to a person who is like devoting their whole life to doing good at an enormous personal cost. It's like this is what we should be talking about, not you know the categorical analysis. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But the bottom line is, you know, you pull lawyerly tricks, you get results. Yeah. And and I think we really need to think anytime we go into a trial like this, it's like what is my goal here? Yeah. Do I want results? Do I want to make a bigger point? What are the odds? that I'm going to be able to, to like, I'll, I'll actually have a chance to make the bigger point. Yeah. And I don't know the answer. Yeah, you're right. And, and so I'm curious to ask you, actually, yeah, no, what, I, what is your so goal with all this? I'm of two minds on this. Part of me agrees with a lot of what you just said. Part of me very much disagrees. And I'll try to explain each of these two minds. The, the part in which I agree with you is, is that I think to convince anyone of anything, and especially big, powerful institutions that are very bureaucratic and have a culture and that don't change very quickly, you have to kind of speak the values and language of that institution or that person even. And, you know, the average judge in a disbarment proceeding or in a criminal case, like the case I'm going to trial on in a month, these are not radical anarchist activists. No, <laughs> no and they went home and ate yeah, they, for dinner. Yeah, they, yeah. and they're not vegetarian or vegans, especially in Southern Utah. Um, they're probably not people who care that much about any form of activism, even beyond animal rights, and, and might even have some negative, maybe even very strongly negative views about activism. So saying, you know, like, oh my God, you know, we're bravely taking on the man and confronting the system for people who don't see that as a valuable thing. No one in their life does that. They don't respect people who do that. They certainly don't want to do that sort of thing. It's like, you know, going to someone who hates chocolate and saying like, let's have a chocolate ice cream party. It's like, man, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't sound like appeal. my sort of party. Yeah. It's not my party. And Rob Willard, Stanford, who um, is actually going to be on the podcast soon. Well, unless I'm in prison. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get him before I go to prison, sadly. But he's um, done a lot of research on, he's a social psychologist who's done a lot of research on effective message framing. And he's found that on issues like climate change, uh, this is probably his most famous study. You can actually convince Republicans to endorse pretty aggressive climate change policy, almost equivalent to what progressives will endorse, as long as you speak in terms of their values. So, mm -hmm. for example, conservatives don't care much about environmental justice. They don't see like polluting the air or the water as like a moral harm in the mm -hmm. way that you and I might, because we're leftists. We're like, oh, the earth, you know? Right. Jim Lovelock and the Gia hypothesis. Mm -hmm. The earth is sentient. We must protect the earth and all the living creatures. Like to the average hunter in Utah or Montana, they're like, what are you talking about? I mean, I kill these animals. Like I'm not, mm -hmm. I don't care about protecting the earth. So what you have to do to convince them on climate change policy is say things like cleanliness and purity. Yes. You know, you don't like things unclean, right? Like mm -hmm. impure stuff, that's gross, right? You don't like impure food, impure air, impure water, impure people, like whatever it is, you know, mm -hmm. like because conservatives, there's a lot of research showing conservatives care on a lot purity. about impurity. Yes. Like that, mm -hmm. this is why they follow the rules because they, they say like, no, you have to be pure and, you know, don't do drugs and no rock and roll, no sex and all these things because this is the rules and we follow the rules. And so if you can frame it in those terms, you get conservatives to endorse those policies. And I think more generally, Trying to find windows for movement is really important. You know, like you have little political opportunities. This is actually another theory that Duck McAdam came up with, political opportunity theory, where there's some opening that may not actually directly relate to your movement that prevents, that, but that still presents a huge opportunity. You have to take that opening, mm -hmm. whether it's a technicality or in the case of the civil rights movement, you know, I don't think I understood to, to what degree geopolitics really affected the civil rights movement. Like the fact that there's an international crisis around communism and democracy. There's this existential struggle between the Soviet Union and the United States about democracy and freedom gave civil rights act as a huge opening because, mm -hmm. you know, we were being attacked for 
trying to bring freedom to the world while we're oppressing our own people of color in this nation. So mm-hmm. you've got to use whatever message frames are going to work. And even if sure. it's not directly related to the cause. And so if we have to talk about some legal technicality, like the categorical analysis that you presented to us, um, I think that's right. So the reason I'm on two minds of this, because and I think that was the thrust of our legal argument. I still think maybe the most powerful part of the briefing that you added, and I think your own declaration that you drafted for us, because you wrote a declaration for us in mm-hmm. the disbarment proceeding, was just your vivid account of the moral terms of who I was from your mm-hmm. perspective, who, mm-hmm. that you knew me personally. This is someone I know who's sacrificed to help vulnerable beings, and that's not something that should dis- lead someone to be disbarred and to be prevented from being a part of the profession. And I remember reading those words. And again, I might be just more susceptible to this. Uh, be careful mm-hmm. about your own biases. But I, I suspect that even a conservative judge reading this would say, yeah, maybe that is true. Like that there's know, something about the emotional pull of the basic moral argument. Let's not kiss sure. someone else. For sure. Just and for I, trying to help animals. And, and I do think that even the conservative judges and even the conservative prosecutors, as yeah. you've had your own experience in North Carolina yeah, with this, Hayes. are going to be like, yeah, great guy. you know, ultimately... I, I don't really see this dude, you know, behind yeah. bars. This is not, this is not, you know, prison material. Yeah. I mean, of course, this raises bigger questions about who the hell is prison, prison material, material, but yeah. that's that's for a different day. But but I think ultimately they want to do the right thing, but you have to make it easy Zero, for them yeah. to do yeah. the, the the right thing. With some legal technicality or framing yeah. something and, in terms and, of their values. And you know, yeah. the bottom line is that with the bar thing, as well as with this, as well as with any of the other like you know legal struggles that this movement has been through. Oftentimes, we don't know what worked. If something works, yeah. we don't know what it was. Uh, and it's it's sometimes easier to tell what doesn't work because yeah. you're a trial and you do you, something you and lose. you see that you're pissing somebody off and mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, I, I mean... When I was working on, you know, thinking about kind of the necessity defense and the right to rescue and things like that, this a few years ago when I was at the, at the uh, uh, Animal Law and Policy Program at Harvard, one of the things that I read was this really fabulous uh, National Lawyers Guild conference proceedings from the 80s. Hmm. And these are the lawyers that represented the anti-nuclear activists that would break into nuclear sites and do sit-ins and be yeah, removed. Yeah. And, and they were asked kind of like, how do you run these cases? Like, what do you do? And back then, it was easier to make political necessity arguments. And oftentimes, you, would, you could actually win with jurors. Like, yeah. even in, the, in, in places where nuclear sites were, were housed, the jury was like, you know, these are good people, ultimately. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I, maybe I disagree with them, but I, like, yeah. I, do I want them to go to prison? Of course not. These are people who are working for what they believe. So the lawyer said, you know, ultimately, we go with what the client wants. Whether the client wants a legal victory or a political victory is up to the client. Mm-hmm. And the legal victory doesn't always overlap with a political victory. Sure. Like sometimes the, the, the prosecutors would be like, I want to dismiss this case. Like, I don't really want the embarrassment of dragging this person into trial. And the defendants were like, no, I want to go to trial because I want to talk about, you know, the horrors of the nuclear industry and, you know, mm-hmm. all the crimes that we're perpetrating in Central America. Like, I actually want there to be a record of this. And the prosecutors would be like, no, that's like, we're, we're going to object to any piece of evidence you're going to try to introduce. So this teaches me some interesting lessons about kind of like one of the major objects of this litigation, correct me if I'm wrong, is we now have all this footage from what's going on, you know, behind the, the, the abattoir doors. And, and like one of the major goals of the proceeding is to get it into the evidence because you absolutely. want the jurors to see it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then I got to wonder, okay, so how much kind of, you know, elbow grease do we need to put into trying to introduce that as evidence? 
what are the odds that the judge is going to allow it? Is the judge going to be like, no, this is because, uh, you know, just kind of like to, to mention that what the evidentiary standard is, that the pull and push of, of what comes into a trial, what pieces of evidence are allowed, is a push between what is known as probative and what is known as prejudicial. prejudicial so yeah. how much is this like an integral part of, of, of the case? Like, is, is it really related to the issue at, 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 that is the question here? Or is it going to just like sway the jury emotionally in a way that's going to be unhelpful? And what do you think about this footage with respect to is it probative or prejudicial really varies with your political opinion. Because you're making the argument, I'm not guilty because this is not burglary. Like what Mm -hmm. I'm doing here is I'm getting into this place not to commit a felony, but because I want you to know about all this suffering that is happening in your backyard. And this is what I'm using for my necessity defense. This shows the evil that I'm trying to prevent Mm -hmm. by going into the facility. But then somebody like the prosecutor who's watching this or someone like the Farm Bureau who's watching this is saying, no, this is a simpler, a simple burglary case. You know, he's in there to take property out of the facility. Right. And, and, and this is, you know, he is breaking in and all of this stuff is just kind of like swaying the jury Jury, in unrelevant ways, in irrelevant ways. Sorry. So, so, so we really have to think, okay, what are the odds that we're actually going to get this in? How do we balance this with kind of, you know, perhaps less morally compelling arguments that we've actually had some modicum of success with and how do we balance between those two? And, and, and that's a really tough call. Yeah, it is a tough call. And one good thing about that, though, is the legal system, I've lost so much confidence in it, and I feel like the arguments and even the rhetorical methods of of, of the law are, I mean, I, I called it freaky persuasion recently. <laughs> and that, I think that it's just, it's not an authentic and natural way to communicate. No. Um, and this is one of the reasons you need lawyers, unfortunately. Like, I don't think I realized the value of a good lawyer until I got involved in litigation. Actually, even when... I was a litigator myself. Like I was a litigator representing clients, big clients in Chicago in these securities fraud cases. And I was like, why are people paying us so much? This is so stupid. You know, I'm like mm-hmm. doing all this doc review, just looking through 10,000 reams of documents to find one smoking gun that might not even be there. And I was thought, why are people paying so much? And after becoming a client and seeing how much a difference it does make when someone like yourself lends their eye to something and finds that even if it's a technical legal argument, it's one that in the language of judges and lawyers is going to win someone over and make them think like, I, I have to do this even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even if it doesn't win them over, they might even feel like I'm legally required to do this because you know, the arguments been laid out shows that under our current system, I have to rule for the defendant. Right. Um, so I think, you know, so what, what I was going to say is all that stuff is true. And I think there's all these battles we have to go through and it's, it's, it's a lot of hardship and it's, it's incredibly frustrating at times because you lose all these battles. You think you can win, you win some that you might think you can lose. But at the end of the day, one of the reasons I'm just so extraordinarily confident about this trial, um, and why I actually don't want to go to go away, similar to the nuclear defendants and I actually had a team member. It was actually Andre. Uh, Andre has asked me, he's like, do you want this trial to go away? Do you want to win legally? And I stopped for a moment because I, um, you know, the, the, the activist in me would definitely say no. I would say, hell no. You know, like, let's do this and let's, let's win or lose, frankly, and bring some attention to this issue. But then, you know, I've got a very sick cat. Um, I just lost my dog. I'm right. still recovering from that. I've got, you know, my dad is diabetic and has had some health issues. We thought he was going to have to have a pretty serious surgery recently. Thank God it didn't happen. But, you know, he's in his mid-70s and has a lot of health issues. Uh, I, I have personal goals that I've 
been setting aside for decades, frankly. Like, I'd like to start a family someday. Um, mm -hmm. I'm now a convicted felon. I was actually, even today, I was looking at the standards for adoption and, you know, having felonies is a little bit of a problem. It is, <laughs> it is. If you're trying to adopt a kid someday. And I'm sure the more felonies I have and the more recent they are, the more problematic it's going to be if for I want to sure. start my own family. So it's just, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there are these very, very tough trade-offs. The thing that really makes me think it's going to be worth it regardless of whether we win some precedent in, in trial is just the fact that so many people are already talking about it. And we've got right. coverage commitments from major periodicals. Um, I'm sure a lot of people are going to listen to this podcast and be really interested in your discussion of legal strategy and, and in my discussion of even what it's like to be a defendant in a case. So even if you're not in that position yourself, you can kind of imagine what it's like to be there. And, right. and maybe that inspires you to be a little braver yourself and talking to your friends and family about animals. For sure. So, I mean, and, and, and I, I also think that it is, it is okay. And I think every activist needs to feel that it is also okay to think about your own personal reasons for, for not sure. wanting to go to prison. I mean, I'm reminded, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Suzuki Roshi, who, you know, is credited to, to a large degree with bringing Zen to the West and, and mm. being this very wise teacher of Zen and, and, and bringing people a lot of times to this kind of, you know, place of peace with the fact that we're not all going to stay here forever and with the sure. fact that we die. Do you know what his last words were before he died when he was very, very sick? No. I don't want to die. Wow. Interesting. It's, we're all people, yeah, you we're know? All people. It's yeah. okay to say, I don't want to die. go to prison. Yeah. Prison sucks. Yeah. You know, it's, it's okay to not want to go to prison and it's okay to feel conflicted about, you know, I think that this trial is going to accomplish great things and at the same time to feel like this is an enormous personal price to pay. Yeah. Yeah. It's what you decide ultimately is up to you, but I think it's going back to what we talked about. It is definitely okay to feel all of these things at the same time. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. And I think it's try to some one of the things I've tried to instill in, in all of our activists and especially our defendants. And, you know, I'm lucky in that I have a defendant, actually not just one defendant. There are three other co-defendants, including John Frommeyer, who I think, mm -hmm. you know, he actually pled out of this case a long time ago, and it was the right call for him, 100%. You know, he's got a kid himself now, too. Mm -hmm. and, uh, this is having so a kid for sure and, changes your calculus oh, sure. in a lot of ways. I mean, in the anti-Trump stuff, <laughs> yeah. we were taking much bigger risks before we before had a kid. We, we actually had yeah. a conversation shortly before we, we, we adopted our son. Yeah. Like, you know, we, we need to tone it Scared down a little that. bit in the, yeah. in the protests because uh, our kid needs two parents. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So... Who knows? Maybe three years from now, I'll be reassessing the risks and rewards of, you know, because we did receive a plea bargain offer a, a while ago that involved no prison time, but also had a gag order in it. You know, three years of not criticizing Smithfield. And it was just unacceptable. Yeah, to preposterous. And, any, you know, like the activist in me, again, is saying this is preposterous. I mean, not only are you going to tell me I can't advocate for animals, you're going to infringe on my free speech rights, too. I can't even speak right. and criticize a powerful company. You know, it's, but, a, it's, yeah. a, it's a very telling plea bargain that you were offered because it shows you how afraid they are. No, absolutely. And it was bizarre, honestly. It's just, there's so many things about this case. Just, you know, even when I was telling you earlier about the, what's happened to some of the activists in Beaver County over the last few weeks, where just, just how brazen <laughs> they are about making pretty clear this is about speech and it's not about these two piglets that they didn't even know had been removed. I mean, they didn't know until the New York times called them. Right. I mean, um, and, and it also shows you, I think all these things that happen in these small towns and the resistance to know what's going on, let alone, you know, dismantle these big factories. 
just how insidious it is that the small places economy has to depend yeah, so much on a place like this. Same as prison towns. Yeah. It's like people get kind of married to these places. They know that there's nothing good happening here. Sometimes it's not even good for the place's economy. It's not good for the health that people mm -hmm. that live nearby, whatever. But, but it's like, it's so insidious to come to a poor town Yeah. Or, or, or some rural place and kind of like offer them this as kind of like, you know, this big business that's coming here and is going to kind of save the town. Yeah. Uh, Karen Morin is writing a book now comparing prison towns to cattle towns exactly because of this. Yeah. It's so insidious and it yeah. victimizes everybody. It does. It does. And that's the key thing, you know, because in, in Smithfield's case in, in Beaver County, Utah, one in four of the residents of the county work for the company and The other three out of four are heavily affected because whether you work at a restaurant, a car repair shop, that's where your money people, comes from. Yeah, the schooling system. So, like, when they declared an economic crisis because they're shutting the facility down um, and they're blaming us for it, which, uh, you know, there are all these yeah, don't get a big head. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's, and I just you know, and I and I have such conflicted emotions about that because on the one hand, I think to myself, this is 1.2 million pigs who are not going to have to go through the torment that they will have to go through. On the other hand. I know, especially given how brutal our current economic and political climate is and how little support there is for just ordinary working class people, you know, who are But suffering immensely. This is the heart of the atrocity of the animal factory uh, farm industry and of the prison industry is that it pits people against, against each other. other when they should be uniting United. hand Absolutely. in hand against yeah. the evil of these industries. But people, when they're in survival mode, they can't afford they can't. to see yeah. things this way. And it's, it's strange because you have this Chinese billionaire who owns the company, who's one of the wealthiest people in the world. And he's the one who's getting all the profits. Like you're getting paid seven, eight dollars an hour and just getting by on little scraps. And, and you fight so hard For against anyone who threatens for those scraps, not realizing there's a mansion, literally many, yeah, many we mansions have a common enemy. that we, yeah. we could actually both say like, like, Hey, you know, make us. I'm sure it's nice to have a happy life, but do you really need that seventh mansion? Can we take the seventh or sixth mansion away from you and make sure the kids in Beaver County, Utah are getting a good education? Can we take that fifth mansion away from you and maybe give some of the animals a better life mm -hmm. instead of torture and then slaughter at this abysmal place? Let's take them to a sanctuary where they're not even that expensive, raising even mm -hmm. a farm pig. They're, you, know, you don't have to send a pig to college. <laughs> right, <laughs> they're, they're not right. nearly as expensive. And, um, and I think in the long term, and this is one of the things I even told Rick Pittman, Rick Pittman is the, the poultry magnet who owns the Norbest turkey plant in Utah, even for him. And he's at the top of the food chain anyways. He's the owner of one of the biggest companies in, in Utah and in the nation providing poultry. I've told him this, and I really do believe this, even for you, it's better for this business to be transformed, you know, because you have kids too. You don't want your kids to get MRSA one day. Absolutely. You, you want your kids to grow up in a compassionate world. Where just because you're different or you're in a more vulnerable place, you don't get exploited, mm -hmm. right? And so if we can create a food system, not just a food system, but a political system, where regardless of how much power you have, regardless of whether you're a Mormon or a Buddhist, a vegan or a meat eater or an animal or a human being, or say, say a non-human animal or a human being, everyone is going to be treated with respect and kindness and everyone's going to get the support they need to make it. This is going to be beneficial for your kids and your for grandkids. Everybody. For everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just, and, and I, he's been open to it, honestly, which is one of the tremendous things about Rick. The problem is, you know, the prosecutors and the, the folks at Smithfield are a little less open. And right. one of my hopes actually is that we go to trial on this open dialogue between us and even that billionaire in China who's making so much money mm -hmm. off the labor of the people in Southern Utah. 
maybe his eyes open up a little bit too. Maybe. And, and I think this, this example that you've just given is also another thing that maybe the animal rights movement needs to think more about, which is we really need a lot of different avenues for change. Yes. Because, for example, um, the thing that Leah Garcés is doing from Mercy for Animals, mm -hmm. which is to go to people the who grow yeah. chickens for, for the broiler, basically poultry, poultry industry, and says, you know, the same conditions that you have here are really good for hemp. Yeah. And kind of like helping people actually yeah, get something that's commercially viable and, and not, you know, not torturous yeah. going on and giving people a way of making a living that is also harmonious with, with who they want to be is amazing. And at the same time, we also need people like Bruce Friedrich making mm -hmm. sure that the people are like, oh, I can't possibly give up my burger. I can't possibly give up my bacon. It's like, okay, we're going to work our asses off to make you a patty that tastes even better yeah. and yeah. costs less. Yeah. And we need the people that are willing to take the risk and break in in the dead of night and, and shoot the, the 3D movies and show us what's going yeah. on. Like, it takes everybody in this movement to make it happen. Yeah. So, yeah, so less energy for infighting. Everybody yeah. take a chill pill. And, <laughs> and everybody just kind of understand that we're all trying to bring about the same thing. We just have different ways to, of, of doing it. Those are wonderful words to end this podcast on. Thank you so much. And by the way, that infighting question, we could do another whole podcast about oh, that because well. I know you have very provocative thoughts about infighting and laugh that I, I'd love to talk to you about on a future occasion. Which oh, we'll I've, do, actually, I've turned sure. a page, but I can tell you about it some other time. Please, please, please oh. do. Let's, tell, tell me about it some other time. Okay, we'll do. Um, but yeah, we've been going over two, two and a half hours. Feels like 15 minutes. Yep. Thank you so much <laughs> for being here. Any final thoughts you want to share with our audience before we go, Hadar? Or any final advice you want to give me before I go to trial? It's going to be my last just, time seeing just, you before I... Uh... You, have, you have all my fingers and toes crossed for you. Oh, thank you. And, 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 I think, and I think the good wishes of, of, of lots and lots and lots of people. No, so thank you. I, I hope that helps a little bit with the trepidation and the stress. Yeah, it does. Appreciate it. And, and let's do this again, whether it's five years from now after I get out of prison or five weeks from now oh, after I'm, we I'm win I'm banking on a lot sooner. I'm banking on a lot sooner. <laughs> let's do that. Let's make it happen. Let's visualize it happening in the next six months. Okay? Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Adar. Hope you all enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Big thanks to Hadar for taking some time out of her busy schedule to hang out with me and have that chat. Uh, we might even think about doing this on a more regular basis. So if you really enjoyed that podcast, let me know. Um, cause I'm inclined to, to have it more often cause she's just one of my favorite people and we always have so much fun when we chat, but I also want to thank, uh, the folks who are involved in this podcast behind the scenes, Dean Wierzykowski, Priya Sahani, Julie Waldrop, Ronnie Rose, um, the guy who is really the co-executive producer of this podcast and helped provide the inspiration for having these conversations, but a, a special shout out to one team member who's taking a step back. That's Shiloh Lafaka. Shiloh has edited many of these podcasts. She's been helping us promote the podcast on social media. She's really been just a jack of all trades and been immensely, immensely valuable to all of us on this team and um, to all the causes we're fighting for. So Shiloh, thanks so much. You've been amazing and sorry to see you leave, but I'm sure you're going to move on to even better things. And I guess I'll end as I always do, just asking you to rate this podcast, share it, um, and subscribe to my Substack, The Simple Heart, because if you want to get email distributions of these podcasts, the Simple Heart Substack is the way to get them and to hear my other thoughts about these conversations because I generally release a blog that's associated with each of these podcasts so you can hear some of my thoughts about the topics we discuss in these conversations. So 
finally, thanks to all of you. The Green Pill has been an awesome run. You might be able to hear my cat in the background. He's very excited about the end of the Green Pill. Um, and the new podcast will fulfill many of the same objectives, but be a little different. Um, and it's still going to be me talking to awesome and amazing people like Hadar Avram. So stay tuned for more, but it's been an amazing run. So excited to continue sharing these stories with all of you. So until next time, which actually there won't be a next time. So not until next time, <laughs> until rebranding and the launch of the new project. Um, until that time, I will see you soon. Bye-bye.